episode of the Quarter Three Movie Podcast for Free Fire. My name is Tom Chick. I brought along Christian Molkowski. Yep, really? Brought him along, and he's here. Oh, uh, I'm I'm IIFTP in it for the podcast. <laughs> and <laughs> that was worth waiting for. <laughs> <laughs> and with our speaking of things worth waiting for, with our free fire tagline, the official one, and maybe a few others, Kelly Wand. Finally, a movie where Brie Larson's in the seventies. <laughs> oh right, you know what? I've so forgotten about that silly King Kong thing that doesn't even register. Give give me a better one, Kelly Wand. It has it doesn't, some of the same music. I just assumed they shared shots and just CG gorillas. <laughs> right. In, it was uh, kind of like. Peter Cushing in Rogue One. They just used yeah. yeah. Oh, he was terrifying. For not for the reason. Oh. All right. Uh, so you have, you have a tagline that doesn't require knowledge of King Kong colon Skull Island. Yeah, I have some that are just for dilettantes. Good. What are they? So that's why they call it a rain check. Hmm. Get it? Because there's water at the end. It's water humor. Well, so any movie, you could use that for that movie. What's the, an education where Dingus was outraged at the lighting during the rain? Uh, well, someone has to say a, a line with the word rain check. Otherwise, it's really stupid. That's the funny part. Oh, oh you know what? You're basically taking a tagline from a quip that's said in the movie. I see what you're saying. I didn't yeah, I forgot that. Very good. Okay, do you have one that's not re- relying on knowledge of a Killian Murphy line? It's like a Tarantino movie, but without the monologues. I'm not sure how I feel about that, but I do want to talk about it when we start, when we get into spoiler territory. Do you have any others, Kelly? Don't judge. God damn it! Don't judge sex pests by our worst specimens. (laughs) I feel like I'm reading them wrong. They're not good either. But the delivery is making it. They do feel like odd translations from another language. <laughs> I expect the silence. I'm not going, oh, that's weird. I thought that would kill. But it's still like, when did I ever think it would? Well, are there more of these? There's one last one. Uh, it's like Captain America's Civil War, but with the ending I wish Civil War had had. <laughs> I don't even remember how that movie ended. You guys loved that. But is that the one where the helicarriers crash? Nope. <laughs> Some of these have to depend on you remembering a movie you saw in the last <laughs> year. <laughs> Your zone keeps getting narrower. That's one with Black Panther? Yeah. Yep. I just think Civil War would have been awesome if they'd both... If- hey, 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 spoiler. I mean in uh, Captain America, oh, the movie you saw? <laughs> Well, let's get into that. So, Dingus, before we let Kelly Wan spoil more substantial things about That's it. That's not spoiling anything, is it? <laughs> tell us a little Are bit, Dingus. A little bit about the movie that we saw this week. I could right, be kidding. This, it could be. This week we saw Free Fire, Aww. a 2017 British action comedy thriller crime movie about, ooh, guns, guns, guns. Come on, Sal. The Tigers are playing tonight. I never miss a game. It was did he just by, do, Kelly Wand? What was that? It was very like alarming, it. and I think it has to do with sports. What was that? It's got to be Hoosiers. Is it really, Dingus? Did you just do lines from Hoosiers? I did not, but I'll tell you later what the line was from. All right, I'm going to make a note. Ask Dingus what that weird gun, gun, gun thing was. Okay, go ahead. Brewster's Millions, my other guess. <laughs> it was directed by Ben Wheatley. 
Yeah. And written by Ben Wheatley and Amy Jump. That's got to be. It stars Sam Riley, Michael Smiley, Brie Larson, (laughs) Killian Murphy, Uh, Army Hammer. Uh, uh, Yeah, seriously, (laughs) Army Hammer. Did that guy get any taller? He really brought it. I was so I was so pleased with him. You know, I'm, oh, hold on. never mind. Hold on. Hey, hey, oh, spoilers! Spoilers! Civil War! <laughs> Civil War! Civil War alert! And Charlotte Copley. Yeah. Free Free Fire is rated R. Well, come on, Dick. I'm not sure I buy that. For strong violence, pervasive language, sexual references, and drug use. Pervasive. Also smoking. They didn't mention the smoking. The MPAA is really falling down on the job here. Seventy I think, smoking. I think they're putting smoking under the umbrella of drug use because oh, smoking is a drug. Very good, Dingus. I'm, you know what? I'm on board with that. Good. And smoke okay, can't like, get around umbrellas. <laughs> <laughs> Not no, even wonder, Watson's umbrella? Are there things that the MPAA should also warn mothers and fathers and parents about in, in terms of bringing children to this movie? I give Free Fire a good for all ages. Bring everyone. I saw nothing. What do you mean everyone? Grandma, the fetus, uh, pets will like it. The fetus. (laughs) Kelly, that sounds like a spoiler too. Like you're you're making a a evaluation. That's like an opinion you have on the movie. People's grandmothers and fetuses. You think everybody will enjoy it? Huh. Well, I just think there's it's a safe movie to bring. Okay, I see what you're saying. Right, right. There's nothing controversial might, or objectionable. Yeah, they might <laughs> yawn, but they won't be traumatized. No, you just it's wait, final. Mister. You just wait. Really? <laughs> well, Free Fire is. Uh, I it opened its number one week at number seventeen, Out and that is many. not what A24. That's and it was a fairly wide opening. I mean, well, not fairly, but it was it was a thousand theaters. This was no like stealth out some limited release kind of thing. Uh, but it just had an abysmal performance. It only made a really? million dollars. Seventeenth, uh, it came in behind like uh, Logan in its eighth week. I think was number sixteen. So even I mean, Logan was a great example. Like even there was some Jesus movie that came out a few weeks ago. It came in way behind that. Uh, that's uh, depressing to me. It just it, it financially tanked. What was uh, number one? Cameron one. Number one this week was uh, oh, some cartoon, I think. Right? That was your choice to make. Oh, no, no. It was that panda bear thing, I think. Yeah, the Disney panda bear documentary, right? Didn't that come in first? Wow. Uh, I mean, the, the thing is. Drive cars, panda I would think that, well, that like, the, the Fast and Furious movie would still be up there. No, that just went down to like uh, 30 something million. Uh, People the, get I think it. the panda bear movie beat it. But yeah, so number 17. Uh, yeah, it's just. Terrible. I mean, 17 movies. Out of how many, though? 80 or 17? Uh, I think they track. It depends on how many are in wide release. They track probably on the list like uh, 30, 40, something like that. Uh, Basically, all movies that are still marketed? in. That's what I'm guessing, is it probably was not marketed. Because uh, I, you know, I don't know bad. what A4 normally does or if they didn't do it this time or if people just don't really care about Brie Larson or Charlotte Copley or Army Hammer. I don't know. But. Whatever reason, it's not making or money. Or Scorsese. Scorsese producing, you would think, right, he, he knows how to run a, put together a trailer or whatever. I, I guess they just didn't get it, maybe. Because you think they would just go, oh, it's like a Tarantino movie. You 
there's no Tarantino out. Come see this. Like that seemed like it would have been. Well, let's see if the critics got it. (laughs) On Metacritic, the average rating from various reviews is 64. On Rotten Tomatoes, two thirds of the reviews are positive. It's at 66% on Rotten Tomatoes. CinemaScore, which evaluates how idiots feel about a movie, couldn't be bothered. CinemaScore did not rate it. However, a found footage horror movie called Phoenix Forgotten about kids who get like kidnapped by a UFO. That came out this week. CinemaScore oh. uh, idiots gave it a C minus, which is the lowest, oh, no. lowest possible grade you can get. Nobody gets a D on CinemaScore. So idiots hated Phoenix Forgotten, which sometimes is a good sign for a horror movie, by the way. Because idiots don't understand horror. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Remember, yeah. Kelly? You have to be re- right. You have to be really intelligent to understand. <laughs> The difference between a red herring and a kill <laughs> sequence. Kelly Wan, speaking of having to understand things, I would like you to elaborate on the events of Free Fire by giving us a free fropsis. Hmm, it's interesting that you just added an R before the opsis. I did not part. add any R's. I just took out an I. Fri- fropsis? Yeah. Fire has an R. Took out an I. I yeah. see. No, you put the R ahead of the I. Uh, it tricked me into saying what you said. <laughs> the ultimate humiliation. So we, should, we should warn people. Here come spoilers. Kelly Wand lets you. Yeah, you're going to go. Oh, I don't even need to see it now. Right. So if you haven't seen it, you might want to turn off the podcast at this point. If you have seen it, Kelly Wand's going to clear up a few things right now. <laughs> I like to think that there's one guy out there, though, probably a guy, who goes, I've seen the movie, but I still don't want spoilers. And then he turns off this part. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to keep it pure. I don't know bullshit of Kelly in my head. That's not how the word spoilers works. Well, he doesn't know that. I'm, not talking, about, I'm talking about a hypothetical president, for example. <laughs> I just want the listeners to know uh, Dingus and I were treated to Kelly Wand reading uh, interview quotes from Donald Trump before the podcast. And... It's good uh, calisthenics it, for your brain. Listen <laughs> Kelly, to Kelly calisthenics. Yeah, yeah. I, I enjoy it. So. All right, so Kelly Wan, enough with that silly Donald Trump fellow. <laughs> Let's get down to some Ben Wheatley with uh, the Free Fire synopsis, which is called Free Fight. Free Fipsis. Of course. A guy with a black eye named Steve O is in a van with his friend Bernie, who has a mustache just like the weekend at one. Bernie's all, dude, what happened to your eye? Steve-O's all, a character we haven't met yet didn't like it because I had sex with his cousin improperly. Bernie's all, my character thinks this. He puts some potholder puppets on his hands. Meanwhile, in a car, Brie Larson's all. Then Kong killed the CG and Loki didn't shoot anything. At least he didn't have to change my hair. And Loki was in the last Ben Wheatley movie, so here I am. She shrugs. <laughs> Cillian Murphy's all. I look like the guy from Sleeping in the... <laughs> God damn Wow. Irish, huh? All right. I look like the guy from Sleeping with the Enemy in this, even though that guy's also in this. She shrugs again. <laughs> He's all, speaking of which, I keep forgetting, are you in the FBI? She's all, nope, actually I'm in the IIMF. He starts to draw his gun out. She's all, wait, wait, it stands for in I'm myself for. He's all, oh, okay. He reholsters his piece and his gun. 
She's all. I'm just the receptionist, though, to one of the junior partners. But if all goes well, TGFI, he starts to draw his gut again. <laughs> Another guy with them named Frank also has a mustache, but it's red. I lean over to the bullet sitting beside me and go, wouldn't mind giving her a milk mustache. It ricochets. They go to a warehouse with Charlotte Copley and his black friend Gary and the Lone Ranger in it. The Lone Ranger's saw. I'm not John Hamm, by the way, Kelly. (laughs) (laughs) I lean over to the bullet hole and go, it's too bad they didn't cast the other brother from Social Network. That guy was great. Charlotte kisses Brie Larson's hand, but only the backside for some reason. He's all, yeah, your hand's as gorgeous as ever. Now let's put on a bit of weight. Jeez. Free Larson's all fuck off. By the way, John Ham's went. John Ham's name and this is Ord. Ord shakes Cillian Murphy's hand. Cillian. I might be stuck thinking of that actor as that name forever now. Ord shakes Cillian Murphy's hand, but doesn't comment on its weight. He's all thanks for coming out. He tries to shake Frank's hand, but Frank's not interested. Ord's all. Speaking of which, you didn't masturbate before you got here, did you? I don't work with anyone who's carrying a loaded weapon, unless it's a gun. Frank's all, I need to frisk everyone to make sure they're not wearing a wire. <laughs> Beside me, Trump cups his mouth and goes, check the black eye. <laughs> I'm all. <laughs> no, he loves them. I'm all. Check Brie Larson slower. <laughs> Ord's all. Do guns count as wires? I have one of those. Cillian understandably looks at Brie Larson for a bit and goes, Want to get a drink after this? <laughs> Irish. Governor. She's all, fuck off. Charlotte Copley takes a couple of minutes to spread out a tarp over some off-screen crates, then whips it off and goes, Eh, check out the match. <laughs> Unlike Elysium, satisfaction guaranteed. <laughs> <laughs> Cillian opens one of the boxes, sighs, and shuts it. He's all, these are IIMF 69s. I ordered 16s. Charlotte's all, I'm not running a fucking pizza delivery service. And if I was, so what if these were tacos? His black friend's all, keep your shit together, man. Free Larson's all, hey, Cillian, about getting drinks, I want to change the off part of my response to yeah. I forgot to notice you're good looking. Cillian takes out one of the rifles and snaps a fresh clip in. So, I'm used to it. Ord's all, okay, full disclosure, if you're going to do that, I'm going to have this out. He puts a joint in his mouth and lights it. I stand up, pump my fist, and go, hi, Rice. (laughs) (laughs) Way too forced. Way, way too forced. (laughs) What? (laughs) Sounded like Christoph Waltz. It's almost a real word. Forced. (laughs) I don't see joints lit in very many movies. Tom. It was not a. Was it a joint? I guess it was. What? I didn't know if he's like rolling his own cigarettes, like a Pulp Fiction thing. I guess. Listen, it was what he's saying during the movie. He's obviously baked. I don't Fair know. Fair enough. Yeah, you have to stop doing so much dope if you uh, if you want to hit something over now and then. Also, yeah. the way you inhale a joint is different than a cigarette. Like we're holding the smoke in your lungs, so it Wait, hold on. Now. Right. Let me, let me write this down. Yeah, I think it's take notes. You'll need to know this on the quiz. L U N G E R E R 
Cillian starts drawing a 70s mustache into the wall by using bullets. Charles toes all, careful that wall's me favorite steel. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, accents. After an encouraging go-getter thumbs up from Bernie, Steve-O walks up to Brie Larson and goes, Hey, do you have some makeup I can borrow? She's all, um, here's some lipstick. Enjoy. Bald guy with hair and glasses drives into the warehouse in a van at 10 miles an hour and drives around in a circle for a bit, while some music on his eight tracks all. It can hold eight kids and four hound dogs and a picket you stole from the shed. Sleep with you by the bean on grandpa's feather bed. <laughs> I look over at Diesel and go, my favorite Kenny Rogers movie is Six Pack. He plays a race car driver with a camper. Frank tries to put Brie Larson's lipstick on Steve-O's face. Steve-O's all, I want to do it. Frank's all, I'll do it. You can barely accessorize. <laughs> was it funny when I was writing it? The guy with hair gets out of the camper. Steve-O sneaks over to Bernie and goes, shit, that's the guy who disliked my eye last night. <laughs> he tries to hide behind nothing. Then he raises his voice and goes, hey, Frank, I can't lift boxes right now. I have a IIMF simplex 69. Frank sighs with annoyance. He's all sympathies after sympathetic and sympathies in the directionary. <laughs> directionary. <laughs> That's not supposed to be like that. Stupid Frank. Suddenly the guy with hair is all, what the fuck, you again? He stomps up to Steve-O and goes, this is for getting a black eye from me last night. He punches Steve-O and gives him another black eye. Steve-O sighs and limps over to Bree again. Hey, uh, I need to borrow your makeup again. Slillian's all, is there a problem? Charlotte is all, yeah, there's a problem. Your loose cannon just got beaten up again by my loose cannon. And what you need M16s for, these are IR-70s. It's almost double. Cillian's <laughs> all. Look, none of our characters are sympathetic. We don't want this whole movie to be about a shootout. Let's just put the briefcase and the guns and the van and the money and I'll leave happy and alive. Free Larson's all. Yeah, but our side didn't bring a sex pest, except for Charlotte and Kelly. Ord's all. That's true, I'm not a sex pest. Cillian's all. All right, all right. Here. He beats up Steve-O some more, then goes, there, I think he learned his lesson this time. Steve-O apologized to the Kenny Rogers enthusiast. <laughs> Steve-O walks up to the hair guy and goes, okay, uh, I'm sorry. My eyes are so black. He winks mischievously. And your cousin said I was the worst lover she ever had. Everybody starts beating him up while he alternately laughs and goes, ow, ow, ow come on. What the, I don't know why this keeps happening. Why? The guy with hair sighs, goes to the van, grabs a gun, comes back and goes, This is for not having sex with my other cousins. He shoots Steve-O. Everybody scatters and ducks behind boxes and starts shooting at each other. The black guy's all, Come on, guys, let's act like grown-ups here. The guy with hair cackles and shoots a piece of his skull off. Ord's all, Dude, what the fuck? He's on our side. The guy with hair is all, Ugh, sorry. Charlotte's all, all right, look, I'm going to stand up out here in plain view because I believe in human nature. Now, this could get ugly, but there's still time to make the title of this movie Perfect Gun Sale Between Friends, a boring (laughs) short film. (laughs) 
So let's all start by shooting whichever one among us has the most annoying accent. Everybody, including Charlto, shoots at his elbows till he trips and falls behind something. I peek over my seat carefully and squeeze off a couple shots at Jaden. <laughs> oh my gosh. Like Rocky Horror. One ricochets off his Segway and hits frozen Nicholson in the forehead. Jack rolls his eyes at it. Suddenly, Bernie gets up for reasons best known to himself and starts walking around in the middle of the gunfire like C-3PO. He's all, don't worry, Steve-O, I'm a respected... <laughs> Steve-O's all, Bernie, no! The guy with hair's all, Bernie, no, where? <laughs> Laughing, he peeks around his crate and fires. Free Larson's all, ow, what the fuck? He's all, Sorry. She's all, now I think your cousin sucks. She crawls for cover and shoots him back. Suddenly some snipers show up and start shooting at both sides and each other and themselves. Ord's all, oh, I see how it is. Your cheaters brought a sniper? Hey, Charlto, really like your cardboard elbow armor there. You your District 9 guy again? <laughs> it's the complexion of my erection. The guy with hair is all, erection. <laughs> he shoots himself and goes, oh, sorry, sorry. Upstairs, the phone starts ringing. Cillian's all, look, I think we can all agree watching Brie Larson walk out of here would be the most scenic. Brie, go ahead, you're free. She's all, wow, thanks, guys. She stands up and starts limping to the door. You know, I felt a little weird at first being the only girl here, but I guess deep down there really is honor among gun enthusiasts. Charlotte's all, look out, it's Brie! He stands up and opens fire. <laughs> they all shoot at Brie till she's all, ow, what the fuck? God. What's your problem? <laughs> and she heads up the trash-covered stairs for some reason. Frank's all, I'll get her. He limps towards the stairs while they all shoot him. Cillian uses a bag of sand on a dolly to head for the stairwell. He's crouched on the wrong side, though, so he gets shot a bunch of times on his way across. <laughs> Charlotte's all, I want a piece of this action. Snipers, cover me. He limps towards the stairway while everybody shoots at his cardboard. One of the snipers loses interest and falls through some newspapers into some sawdust. He's all, uh, the person who hired me was, uh, his, his name was, eventually someone shoots him. The sniper's all, oh, wait, wait, I see now. What I should have done was say the name of the person who hired me and then go, blank hired me instead of giving the shooter time to cut me off. Oh, well, live and learn. He dies. <laughs> This speech makes some pinatas explode, filling the room with wolf whistles and confetti, like Bree just came back. <laughs> Suddenly, the black friend wakes up, goes, Don't say out loud, I hired the snipers. Fuck. I mean, he shoots his own guys, picks up the briefcase, goes, I win! And dies. <laughs> that kind of happens. Upstairs, Frank and Charlto trick each other by setting themselves on fire. Fortunately for Charlto, his cardboard puts out his flames. Charlto aims at Brie Larson and goes, What kind of girl aren't you? Brie Larson's all, Nice! And squeezes the trigger. <laughs> Her gun clicks emptily. I lean over to the squashed head sitting beside me and go, Been on that date. Cillian Murphy shoots Charlto's nose off, then picks up the phone. He's all, Beaumont, get over here. This is the best gun deal ever. 
on the other end of the line, a woman's voice is all, Congratulations, you've just won a free pewter Warhammer figurine of Vin Diesel's D&D character, unpainted. If you pull the cord in its nose, it'll verbally congratulate you on your incredible stroke of good fortune. Hello. Hate me pitch black. Winning me was not your choice to make. X, 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 Toretto, O, O. Ord yanks the phone cord out while a guy walks in and goes, Hey, everybody, it's me, Beaumont. You guys won't believe which garden implement I almost stepped on on my way here. The guy with hair smashes him in the mouth with some off-screen CG, then gets up and drives the van in a big circle again around the warehouse while this Kenny Rogers tape plays. He tries to trick Bernie again by running over his head, but Bernie tricks him back by shooting him in the car seat. Cillian Murphy and Ord shake their heads fondly, brush dirt onto themselves, and hang out by the bullet-riddled van. Ord's all... At least this went better than my last gun, D. Brie Larson shoots him in the head, then shoots Cillian Murphy in the pancreas. She comes over, picks up the briefcase, eyes at Cillian, and goes, Sorry my second bullet got in the way of your lung. He laughs, says something in Irish, and dies. Not in that order. Brie Larson limps towards a wall with no visible door in it, clenching the briefcase while some police sirens grow louder. I look at the briefcase enviously. Steve-O stands up, looks at his squashed head in the mirror, then turns to Bree and goes, uh, Can I borrow your makeup again? <laughs> the end. Uh, all of that was pretty accurate, Kelly Wand. Yeah, yeah. right? That's See? Definitely I was paying attention. Can't yeah. say that about every movie I've seen lately. <laughs> uh, Dingus, I'm doing it's my 3x3 three three this week. Kelly's introducing next week. So that leaves you to go first. What's your over and under? What did you think of Free Fire? Wait, that's the new rule? Yeah, I never heard that either. That's interesting. Oh, sorry, that might have that might have been an under the hood thing. He's doing math in his head, and now we're the victims. As always. <laughs> victims of math. Yeah. Or maybe he just All thinks right. you're the be- he knows what you think and he thinks that'll be the best lead in. I don't you actually we did, we did not get to see it together. Yeah. No, Aww. I had to go see it with somebody else. Tom refused to see it with me. He said I cannot really? do this. Yep. He stormed out late one night and he said, I'm going. I regret to inform you. Goodbye. Uh, when Dingus went, I was playing uh, oh. board games. I was I was nerding out with board games all Dingus, so I had to go on another night. It was actually odd. I'm not surprised it tanked. I I have not. This probably hasn't happened to me, maybe ever. You talk about being in an empty theater. Sometimes there's like two or three other people. I went to a midnight show in on a Friday. Literally, I was the only guy there. It was a, it was a big ArcLight room too. It wasn't one of their little tiny ones. It was one of their main theaters. I was the only guy there. <clears throat> on a, a Friday opening night showing. Did really people nice. know it was out? Because sometimes that happens. Sometimes people are dumb. Uh, I mean, there commercials for it. I wouldn't know, but I knew. I, I knew. I've it. seen billboards and whatnot. Yeah, huh. there were a few people in my theater. I went on um, Saturday afternoon. For, hmm. Well, I was two people in my place, but it was like at 11 p.m. at night in Hamburg. So well, yeah, you're in, a for, you're in a foreign country too. Kelly, right. guess guess what type of board game Tom was playing that afternoon so that he could not go to see the movie. Mm, something where he like traces his chalk outline on around himself on the floor. Like, remember the mystery Kelly, Kelly, it, was, it was a, it was a star Wars board game. <laughs> oh, really? That's yeah. embarrassing. <laughs> no, it's not. It, Cause Probably it wasn't prequels. Pre- it wasn't prequel star Wars. It was regular star Wars, real star Wars. Right. Look, my Dianoga one. <laughs> Very good. Changed how I do your voice a little. 
<laughs> All right. So my over for this, uh, let's see, which I, I chose uh, movies that I think have uh, a somewhat similar tone to this. Um, my over then would be the movie Nice Guys, which I really liked a lot. Um, and then my under would be uh, American Hustle, uh, which I think has some weird, funny moments, but also has some similar things that go on in this movie, as far as I'm concerned. Um, but it's it's not as closely bracketed, uh, because I, I actually like Free Fire quite a bit. Um, uh, it, it's one of those things that happens happened to me early on in this movie, where I'm watching it and I'm thinking, I'm missing a lot. And I can't wait to see it again because I felt like I was missing a lot of stuff. <laughs> and sometimes that upsets me, but this time it just kind of excited me. It was, it was a weird situation. It was weird. Like I feel like I'm missing a lot and I think that's a good thing. I don't know if that makes any sense, but there you go. Nice guys and American hustle. All right. Kelly wand. What is an over and under? What was your opinion of this thing? Well, I just went with the tone the way Dingus did. So my over in movies that take place in a single night, so my over would be Reservoir Dogs, even though it's a day. <laughs> and, uh, Movies that take place in a single night like this one that doesn't. Yeah, and then the other one doesn't either. My under is uh, Seven Psychopaths, that Sam Rockwell thing. Because I remember feeling that that became tedious to me, while as Free Fire never became tedious. I was really enjoying it. It has great audio design. Um, I was so glad I saw it in a theater. I mean, it's yeah, the sort of thing where yep. you wouldn't you wouldn't normally think, yeah, it's something because it's a parlor room drama in a way. It's just people right. in one room talking to each other for the most part, and they also shoot. But uh, the the <laughs> the audio design of the guns was just really great in the theater yeah, with the surround sound. Every and, shot sounds different. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Different different people's different calibers of weapons, and when somebody says that sounds like a Garand, like ben oh, that was, was my favorite. It was my favorite one of my favorite lines. I love that line so much. Yeah, because you know Ben Wheatley definitely had this sense of you know he, he wanted the guns to sound like they had impact and he wanted them to sound important and distinct and the guns were kind of characters in a way you know which kind of right. yeah. say it's kind of like in a way the the fights in Crouching Tiger Hidden Dragon were character development in a way here and I wouldn't go too far with it but in a way here what kind of gun someone had how they handled it mm-hmm. was a lot of their character as much as what they were saying and who they were and what they wore and how their hair was and stuff. Um, Tom, would you remind me what game? Because I really like the Garand in one of the games we used to play, and I think it was Call of Duty, but I'm not sure. Yeah, I don't remember Do specifically. Remember? But I don't remember specifically, but any World War II uh, game would have it. And I, I wouldn't be surprised. In Saving Private Ryan, I, I imagine, do you hear the Garand a lot? Cause it has that distinct ping when it's, cl- yeah. when, it's when it's the clip is empty and it's just a little piece of metal flies out. And I remember uh, that ping from the game we played. I think it was called Dude, but I don't know because I didn't play it that much. But I just remember liking the Garand a lot. And when he said that, I was like, oh, Garand. Right, right. Um, uh, so between that and the dialogue, a lot of good lines. It's, like, it's a really great movie to listen to. It um, is so good to listen to. I'm so glad you said that, Tom. Yeah, yeah, because it's not the sort of thing I'd think, yeah, you got to see this in a theater. Um, so my under, I went ahead just because it reminded me of, as far as the setup, of uh, Trespass, that Walter Hill movie from the 90s hmm. where a bunch of gangbangers and some Arkansas firemen get sort of trapped with each other in, a, in an old warehouse, and they have a shootout. And boy, Trespass is awful. Oh, my God, I'd forgotten how – I remember not really being in Trespass when it came out. Uh, rewatching it this week. Oh, jeez, it's terrible. It's did you get, Trespass is written by Robert Zemeckis. Did you guys know that? Holy uh, cats, no. Yeah, so here, here's the guy who's going to give us Forrest Gump in a little bit, and he's writing this action thing. Uh, and you get Ice T is such a dweeb. 
Like, how does anyone think that Ice T is cool? How can anyone take that guy rapping seriously? I mean, I don't. I guess he is such a dweeb in this movie. His silly hair and his voice, and he's a terrible actor, and he's trying to look important. And at one point, he tries to look stricken when his brother gets shot. Oh my God, he's laughable. I think he's he's well named because he's not as cool as Ice Cube. Well, Ice Cube in this is 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 really cool. Watching Ice Cube by contrast, like at first, Ice Cube. It's an ice off. It is an ice off, yeah. And Ice Cube has allowed his his kind of results. He's allowed his persona to not be taken as seriously. You you have things like Twenty One Jump Street and Fist Fight, where I kind of look at him now and I realize, yeah, he's 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 on the edge of smirking and letting me know that it's a joke. Ghost of so, Mars. So uh, yeah. So watching him <laughs> in Trespass, watching him in Trespass at first, I was like, yeah, he's a, I can't take him seriously. But as the movie went on. And he's so committed, and he's really good. I was like, okay, I don't have to take him seriously. He's good. Here's a guy actually acting, and he's convincing, and he's one of the few guys really selling this. Um, so I think Trespass is a terrible example of a, a, a parlor room shootout, which is uh, how I'd characterize this. And I love – you know, Reservoir Dogs is another example. Uh, yeah. But uh, yeah, I'm not bracketing it at all because I don't I, – I, man, I love this thing. I am so yeah. – any – any reservations I had about Ben Wheatley after seeing Field of, in England, I'm just going to pretend Field in England never existed. Because, oh my God, I am so in love with Ben Wheatley and Amy Jump at this point. Uh, this movie was for me, and I love that they did it. So my over, because I can't think of any other good parlor room shootout like this. Like, Hateful Eight wanted to. Yeah, Hateful Eight uh, tried. Hateful Eight wishes it could be half as good as this. Um, so my over, I'm just going to have to go with, because I do think that this is the definitive parlor room shootout uh and i think i even might like this more than reservoir dogs reservoir dogs is brilliant but for reasons i want to talk about i think i like this better my over is going to be a movie where none of the players is really necessarily the villain they are all relatively likable but they do terrible violence to each other for understandable reasons they're just caught up in in these circumstances so my over is uh the rover where you have these people, none of whom – I mean you kind of by the time it's over, you kind of like all of them, and somebody's going to have to kill someone else in the rover. Like the rover's going to have to have some violent ending, and I really liked about this because in Trespass, by the way, you need uh, – so the Bill Paxton and William Sadler, the, the good old boys who come from Arkansas to find this hidden gold in East St. Louis, and over the course of the movie, the gold kind of corrupts William Sadler, and he becomes the bad guy, and he's irrational, and he makes them all do terrible things, and, and of course he gets his just desserts, but uh, he's the villain. Uh, I don't think this movie did that with anyone. I mean certain people, certainly Steve-O was the whiny, snivelly guy, and presumably he'd beaten a woman the night before, so yeah, he was a jerk, but there was nobody in this who was really driving – everybody towards villainous behavior it was just things falling apart with relatively likable characters um and i just that that was just like green room for instance is another in a way kind of parlor room siege uh green room clearly you've got the evil guys and the good guys and the evil guys are driving the action if they just leave the good guys alone it would be fine this movie doesn't have that luxury because they're all fairly decent people who are just falling apart along different lines uh, and I don't think Ben Wheatley intended this, but there's almost a kind of a, a, a political dimension here, at least sort of how I feel politically, is that people who don't normally hate each other are kind of having to hate each other these days. And that's yeah. sort of just my feeling politically, and it was really 
uh, it just it just meant a lot to me to watch that happen on a microcosm in a really thrilling, well written, uh, beautifully cast action movie. So there you go. So just, avoidable. It's, it's exactly it's like so avoidable. Movie. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Right, right. Um, and and that's and the same with the rover, by the way. You know, the rover, if they just let him take the car at the very first part, but nobody understood anybody else's agenda or what was going on, even though everybody kind of meant well, just nobody really fully appreciated the situation and it just unraveled. Um, so, I, yeah, I could, I could just gush for uh, hours about this. So a huge fan of this. And I, mm-hmm. I, I so love that um, – so his wife is Amy Chung. Well, I'd actually, I don't know if they're married, but they're, they're partners. They call uh, themselves partners, writing partners and partners, yeah. Okay. Uh, and and clearly, like, you see I, – I mean, she's obviously not the public face of the movies, but she is credited as a writer in, uh, in Sightseers and uh, in High Rise. Uh, I think she edits the movies with him. Um, so I, I just – I get this sense that they're kind of this really cool team – working together because the stuff he's done with her name mentioned as a writer, as an editor like this, like high rise. Um, I, I just, and like sightseers, uh, I just, uh, amazing movies. Um, well, you know, we, uh, I went to, we went to see it at the arc light and at different times. And one of the things that arc light sometimes does is does one of these like little press packets afterward where you see, uh, an interview with a filmmaker that, that they produce specifically, supposedly for the arc light, and I know that you you're usually not crazy about that type of thing, Tom, because it feels prepackaged, most like uh, any of those press those electronic press things. Well, it is. They shoot them when they're doing the press junket. I mean, right. it's clearly uh, like Ben Wheatley sets aside, or his publicist will set aside a few days, and it'll be like, okay, you got 15 minutes with Entertainment Weekly, and then 15 minutes with uh, this weird blog, and now 15 minutes with the arc light. Uh, and yeah, so it's clearly they're just broadcasting their little press junket interview. Yeah. But the, but one thing I did like about it because I sat through most of that was hearing Ben Wheatley talk and and say, and and talk about Amy Jump and I I just imagine that she just doesn't want to do those things or has other things to do, and him saying you know I'll I'll write scenes and and then say I don't know what to do with this and hand it over to her and she goes okay I'll fix it. Um, and he and was super deferential too yeah, about uh, exactly. you know whatever you know the, the crappy stuff is the stuff that I've done and she makes yes. it better. Like he was exactly. just super complimentary towards her, and you know they clearly have well he clearly has a lot of respect for her. Uh, it just seems like, and based on the the movies that come out of their collaboration, it just seems like such a, a, a fruitful collaboration. Uh, yeah, like, yeah, they're good together. And I kind of do now want to uh, hear her interviewed, and I don't know if she has been. Uh, this also, it just makes me so grateful for the British Film Institute and the National Lottery. Yeah, now, you see too. the National Lottery's logo uh, in front of a lot of movies, and this is the UK. They have a state-run lottery, and mm-hmm. part of what they do with the money they earn from it, because the UK actually – most other governments, at least uh, – first world governments in the world have a different way of thinking about this but part of what happens to the money that the national lottery earns is they they funnel it into cultural pursuits like right. the british film institute uh and they give grants to guys like ben wheatley if ben wheatley had made this movie in the states he would have to take it to a studio he'd have to get financing from the studio he'd probably get studio notes i don't know what percentage of the money for this this is a i think a 10 million dollar budget comes from a grant from the bfi but i i 
I think it couldn't have happened without it. Uh, and I just right. love, studio notes would have destroyed this movie. I think. I remember it's, us talking about the BFI before it, or, it, and I wonder if it was during Fish Tank. I'm not sure. But I remember us talking about that. Yeah, like Andrea Arnold, I imagine, uh, like Fish yeah. Tank and uh, not Red Lantern. What was the Red Red Road? Yeah, like Red Andrea Road. Arnold. I, I I don't doubt that uh, she was a huge beneficiary of the BFI grants. Yeah. Um. So yeah, so Kelly Wan Studio Notes. What, why would Studio Notes have been a problem with this? Because you know, I'm sure <laughs> Paramount has some ideas. Maybe Kelly Wan, if it had gotten more Studio Notes, it would have made more money. Um. Mm, I don't know. Well, you don't know, and then if it doesn't, you've ruined the movie and lost the money. Was well, this? I think. I think word of mouth's going to help this movie because it made a big impression on me, and I can't wait to like make people watch it and go see. Why didn't you see this opening weekend? Yeah. No, I can. I can think of a lot of ways that the studio would have fucked this up. Yeah, uh, that ending is such a bummer to me, and I didn't expect to feel that. Like, oh, like, like oh, you mean die. when when Ord gets shot? Yeah. Because in my and, theater, uh, and Chris. Uh, two people behind me, when Ord gets shot, two people behind me went, no. And the other one went, yeah. oh, no. Right. I mean, they, they, no, they, that's right. Yeah, they were so strong. The it was like, no. Oh, no. Because Ord is such a, a – I don't know. You just sort of gravitated to him. And it was just great to hear somebody yeah. in the theater yell out, oh, no. And when he picks up Chris and just like slings him and Chris is like trying to half fight him, like, ah. And he just like sets him on the bumper, like, come on. Although I wondered, like, was their plan like they knew the cops were coming. So I was curious if because they were going to let's take the money and wait for the cops. Like they you're, tried. To so you're wondering what their plan was. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Just a the plan was to leave. I'm guessing. <laughs> yeah. They're going pretty slow. But, but I like what. I agree with Dingus. Like things are happening in this movie really fast, and I really want to watch it again and study just the logistics of the shootout better. It's really dense. Too, it's, it's a super dense movie dense. with, with dialogue, yeah, with actions, with choreography. <clears throat> Absolutely, it doesn't wait for you to figure it out. You have to go by the body language of the characters a lot. Like you can tell when they know they're behind good cover and stuff. Well, even that doesn't always work because because. Sometimes it's hard to tell who's who and who's shooting at who, and that's one of the points of the movie because you know there's even a line about that. Like, I don't know whose fucking team I'm on. You know, yeah, I forgot bit. what side I'm on. Yeah, I yeah. forgot what side I'm on. I mean, that's that's kind of very important. And I think that when you guys were talking about sound, and I was writing about the sound design of this movie and how much I was really crazy about it and how overwhelming it is, but in a great way. And it also, I think, it kind of uh, owes a little bit to. Altman kind of in the, in the yeah. fact that he's not entirely worried. He, I, I say he, but I mean both uh, Ben Wheatley and Amy Jump are not entirely worried about us hearing every line perfectly. And in fact, in writing up my notes this time, I had a number of lines I wrote down and went, I don't even remember what this line was. I, I, I scribbled in the dark and usually I can figure it out. I can figure it out based on the context and where this falls in the movie. Oh, that's what that line is. But I don't think that the movie – really cares for me to know every single line in, in the first viewing because the you. lines overlap and the sound drowns out some of the lines and the characters are sort of saying nonsense a couple of times because they're freaked out. And uh, and I think that a studio note, when, which is why I asked you this question, Kelly, like dovetailing off of what Tom was talking about, would have been we need to hear the lines and we need to have p- more people actually when they shoot hit somebody. Um, because I love the fact that they they can't they can't hit anybody, and they also have wounds that they sustain for 
you know, a certain amount of time and they understand the amount of time that that, that wound is going to sustain. But I think a studio note would have said, we need to have a hero who sh- actually can shoot everybody, everybody else's stormtroopers, and we need to actually hear the lines. And I think that the point of this movie subverts all of those things in a beautiful way. So, so much to play off of there, Dingus, that I want to touch on. But uh, one of my biggest fears is that and I actually, this fear is allayed now that Free Fire has tanked at the box office. Would be a studio offering to give Ben Wheatley a lot of movie to come make a uh, a lot of money to come make a movie in the U.S. Come make a studio film because uh, mm. so Ben Wheatley, for... this is so not a studio movie. And and yeah, absolutely, this is it, no more than High Rise or Sightseers. Uh, it, it is not a studio movie. It is a distinct voice, uh, and that's one of the things I love about it. And what's you, uh, let, let me ask you. I'll put it this way: uh, How Tarantino-esque do you guys feel this movie is? Mm, and and not even overtly. good, you know, even good because we I think we all agree that Hateful Eight's bloated. We had uh, problems with Django Unchained, but uh, as far as what Tarantino kind of created and what he represents with his early movies, how much do you feel that this fits in with that? So Kelly, one, sorry, go ahead. Well, this one feels more realistic. Like the Tarantino characters are kind of like we know we're in a Tarantino movie. And mm-hmm. so this felt more um, – the fact that half the cast is British and half are American lends it a certain um, vibe that I don't get from Tarantino. I don't think he does good British people. <laughs> um, yeah, poor Christoph Waltz in Django Unchained, for instance. Yeah, and he wants you to hear his lines. He's like – he lovingly photographs people saying his lines, and in this, which, it's way different. It's, which yeah. is exactly what I think Dingus was getting at with uh, – here, I think it's – like it, it's uh, – A lot of mumblers. Well, they're, they're, it's not – this is not – actors making sure that they deliver the script into the microphone right. and audible like it's it, the words don't call attention to themselves this is a movie and i like dingus that you invoked altman because this is a movie ultimately about people having conversations because the actor in, in <laughs> yeah. a normal movie in a normal movie those stop for the action sequence you're talking you're talking something happens characters learn things about each other and then up oh, there's a shootout or oh there's a car chase or oh we're going to have some sort of beautiful balletic slow motion action sequence with cool choreography and stuntmen and explosions this isn't that even though it's it's a shootout this is the the fact that the people are shooting at each other is basically just part of what the conversation is it's actually it's about, excellent yeah yeah, it's about them. It's about a room full of people talking to each other, and what they're saying to each other, in a way, is more important than the, the gun. I mean, the gun ends up taking some of them out of the equation. It's what frightens everyone. It's what keeps everyone's in, in everyone in place. Uh, but it's about people just in a room talking to each other, and it's not written in a Tarantino-esque, self-aware. Hey, I'm, I want the writer to get as much recognition as the actors and the director kind of style, because that's what Tarantino does. And I think he does it well. I watched Inglorious Bastards again this week for the three by three. And I, I, I love some of Tarantino's writing, but this isn't that because it's it, it doesn't have that hip writer's some dialogue feel to it. But by no means though, does that mean that it is not as well written? Because mm-hmm. I also again and I boy talk about a it's really hard watching dystopia movies these days with the Trump administration. But I, again, I, I watched High Rise again, and High Rise has just some knock me on my ass lines in it. And they're little tiny writers things. They're not big, powerful Tarantino esque. Hey, look at what a flashy writer I am. And I think the there's some. Yeah. 
I think there's some of that here. I think there's some really good, just seriously good writing, whether it's something irreverent and funny early on about, you know, fucking a reluctant panda bear uh, or or <laughs> or or, or uh, Charlotte Copley's, you know, Africa's not for sissies, stuff like that. Uh, but but then just little bits like uh, Charlotte Copley being described as misdiagnosed as a child genius. That's great writing. That is amazing yeah. writing. And it's followed up by the description of Gary. He was a panther, but it didn't work out. I mean, yeah. what does that even mean? Whatever it means, it makes me think things. Like, that is like, what? how does it not work out being a black panther? Was he kicked out? Was he not hardcore enough? Was he too hardcore? Like, that, that's these characters' introductions. Uh, fantastic writing, but not just so hip and self-aware and calling attention to it. And I think that that's what Ben Wheatley and Amy Jump are so brilliant with in Sightseers, in High Rise, and, and now in Free Fire. Yeah. I think for me, one of the things that I I caught early on that answers your question about how Tarantino this movie is, is, is this, you know, I saw Martin Scorsese's name, you know, as a producer early on in the credits. And then one of the early lines is, I, I thought, a direct call to Raging Bull. Um, that line about he, you know, he's not pretty anymore, um, is a is a is kind of a, a quote from Raging Bull, and so I started to think, wait, is this movie just going to quote other movies? Is that what he's going to do here? Is that what they're going to do here? But they don't do that. He, I think, he kind of gets that out of the way. He dismisses it, and then, like you said, and I love the way that you put this because I think the gunshots and the bullets become part of the dialogue, and that's all part of this the structure of the movie the the things that they say are just as important as what the bullets are saying in some cases um so i think that i think he gets that out of the way he when i say he i mean both him and amy jump uh are getting that out of the way early and saying look that it's not that kind of movie and we don't you know we're not going to be cute except when we need to be but don't worry this isn't going to be a sweet movie in that way uh and we're not in love with ourselves what it reminds me of, Dingus, and, and Kelly Wan, you mentioned this, you know, it, the, the fact that – and I didn't even realize until I was reading about this it, it, that it's set in Boston. Like I don't recognize the Boston skyline mm -hmm. enough. But so this is apparently set in Boston. I, I knew it was in the U.S. I didn't know it was a specific city. Uh, but it does have a very multinational feel because there's a South African in the room, because there's this tension between the IRA and, and, the, and the British, and, and you know, because these are arms for the IRA. There's a very multinational feel and, of course, a very British edge. Which in Sightseers and High Rise is definitely, and even a kill list, definitely part of what Ben Wheatley's doing. His first movie, uh, Down Terrace, I think, I haven't seen it, but I think it was like a British gangster movie. Um, but where what it reminded me of, but what I think it's very different from, is uh, is Guy Ritchie. And Guy Ritchie, mm. super yeah. flashy director, very actor-centric. Like, Guy Ritchie loves his casts. He loves being big and generous and flashy with his casts, having really flashy actors. Uh, and that's, that's an asset in a Guy Ritchie movie. Uh, this also, very actor-centric, but it doesn't romanticize the characters. There's nothing cute yeah. here about them in the way that they are in a Guy Ritchie movie where they look like they're, they're out of a comic book and you know that Guy Ritchie is sort of playing around with them and they're having fun and they're these, they're these wacky caricatures sometimes. Uh, these characters aren't romanticized. And, and furthermore, it's not shy about brutalizing them. 
I mean, this movie, the, you know, the, uh, the, the arc of this movie is people getting shot and bleeding out. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of, in a way, the pace of the movie. You know, it's this tension and this tension, and you know the deal's going to go wrong at some time because of the name of the movie. And you're not here, as Kelly Wan mentioned, this isn't called A Gun Deal Gone Perfectly Fine. Uh, you know <laughs> something's going to go wrong, and it goes wrong, and it explodes, and it burns for a while, and then it kind of peters out like somebody bleeding out that's kind of the feels this adrenaline jolt and then it fades and then you're just laying there dying and that's kind of what happens to all the cast members is they just all get shot and brutalized and they bleed out um and guy Ritchie wouldn't do that guy Ritchie would just have his characters bopping along super snappy all the way uh until maybe you know their head exploded or something yeah head exploding yeah yeah another studio note would be like there's an applause line where brie like i'm not a nice girl and then that lines in the trailer, <laughs> but like, if it was a studio movie, she would have that would have been followed up by a major gunshot. But yep. instead, it, it's an empty, it's a dud. Did you notice she, the boat. Kelly? Because I love watching trailers after I've seen a movie. In the trailer, they she says, "I'm not a nice girl." She pulls the trigger, and they dub in as they cut away a gunshot effect. Like in really? the movie, okay, yeah, yeah. In the trailer, they make it sound like she what? says that and shoots the bullet. I mean, they're just tricking you. I'm okay with that. I hate trailers All anyway. Right. But uh, they clearly in the trailer make it make you think, yeah, this is what this badass girl says before she shoots someone. <laughs> studio yeah, notes are good for trailers, I guess. Well, stu- you know, trailers well, are just yeah. selling movies. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Right. Well, so uh, we had one we had one uh, person writing in this week, Chris Markinson. He really he really really liked it. Um, he said he uh, feared it was going to be a Tarantino ripoff, so he didn't really like it at the beginning. Um, but he really liked it overall. And, and one of the things he said that I don't know that we've necessarily talked about, maybe I think one of you touched on it, was that he says, I think in the movie like this, you have to kind of play kind of fast and loose with reloading and people making bad decisions. But I was OK with that. They seem to be reloading a lot and they seem to be listening to each other reload, like counting the shots. But maybe I was well, just imagining it, but it really well, felt like they just felt like professionals. <laughs> well, well, you know, the. the I, I think that they are professionals of varying abilities. Right, right. You know, I'm not certainly. I'm sure Tarantino knows there with, one end of a gun from another. I felt like I saw it with. <laughs> I saw it with Alexandra, and she's like, "How? How are they still having ammo?" I mean, I did love the moment where um, uh, where uh, Army uh, Hammer has to actually reload the gun, and he's like, "Oh!" And he has to go get the yeah. He has to go get the bag full of so clips, irritated. not clips, their magazines. I guess that's what Tom taught. Um, and and reload it, and it's very specific. But there's so much reloading that's going on doing it during the movie. But one of the things I like about this is, and this is something that Alexandra said as well, is that those moment there's there's this there's this one specific moment where everybody seems to be reloading, and it gives you like a brief respite mm-hmm. where it feels like okay, okay, I can breathe for a moment, and then everything like it then like the music just comes right back in. And I think of the bullets in this as music basically. And that, that's and that, that's. A- Go ahead, Kelly. Go on. I was just going to say, like, imagine a studio note, too, where they get the script and they're like, wait, that guy shoots Brie Larson by accident? What? <laughs> That's so implausible. You got to re- you got to change that. She has to. <laughs> uh, let's then talk about the cast, because, good Lord, uh, man, Army Hammer. I, I wish. Yeah. I mean, it almost makes me want to rewatch. Uh, what was that man from uncle thing? Or I just feel like I, I liked been- that. 
Well, I did too. I did did too, but I feel like I haven't been able to fully appreciate what he can do because seeing him in this, he was just such this great sort of center and this kind of like calm narrator, and it's kind of like you know Steve Buscemi yelling, "Am I the only fucking professional in the room?" Like he was that guy, but (laughs) he's an original character. Yeah, but exactly, Kelly Wand. He's an original character. You haven't seen him before in a movie. Yeah, with the beard and everything, and with how Mm -hmm. tall he is. You know, Dingus mentioned Mm -hmm. his height. He just he stood out in so many ways. Ways, and it just made me so appreciative of what Army Hammer can do. And I guess and now I have, to see that, I have to see that stupid Lone Ranger movie at some point. Uh, <laughs> I well, watched chunks of it. It's only tough. because now I just have so much fondness for him as an actor. Like this instilled me with so much appreciation for him. I think again now I have to see his crappy movies as well. Uh, no, you should maintain this afterglow and not see Lone Ranger. It's my advice. I, I think you. I think you have to appreciate an actor who. Who, who is when his presence comes out past that kind of like makeup and and weird facial hair and stuff yeah. like that? Because yeah. not not a lot of actors can do that, and it, it kind of make me makes me think of and I I think this is the guy's name um, from sorry Tom from Babylon Five. I think his name is Andreas. Yeah. <laughs> Andreas Katsalas had this huge he plays bit Jakar. of makeup. Very good. How did you do that? I'm a oh Babylon God. 5 nerd. I know this stuff. What the I, fuck I was, is happening right now? I was sad when Jerry Doyle died. I would oh not God. have believed that you could have come up with his, his character name. It's That's pretty impressive. Of course I, I no can. As you're talking about. No idea. <laughs> but anyway, I remember watching that with with one of, with our friend Aaron and just being so impressed by the fact that through all of this makeup, that oh, guy yeah, could yeah. just project so – there's so much charisma coming out of him, but so much also um, different levels of humor, different levels of emotion. And I think yeah. that what was surprising to me was that even though I didn't quite catch who uh, Army Hammer was until well into the movie, I was totally drawn to that dude. Yeah. I was like, that guy, that's whoever, I don't know how they cast that guy, or I know I know him from something, but I. I don't know what I know. I know him John about. Hamm was in this. <laughs> um, he has the same but, voice in it almost, and he I sounds was, very I was, excited by himself. I was so taken by him. My my lord, he is amazing in this movie. Just the the patience of that with two hands, Vern. <laughs> like Charlotte yeah. yep. trying, and he's not he's not going to get up and tell her. He's not going to move to tell him that. He's just going to sort of sigh and explain. You know, remember to use. It's like remember to use your indoor voice when you're talking to a child or something. Yeah. With two hands, Vern. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and you know. Charlton Copley, it's basically, in a way, his hardcore Henry character. He's just as big a goofball as ever. And yeah. So, and I don't, boy, shaving him, I mean, not shaving as in shaving facial hair, but making sure you get just the right level of Charlton Copley yes, is yes, really yeah. hard. Yes, yeah. is. Now, this surprised me. I don't know how much to, I generally don't trust it when IMDb says these things, the little trivia section on IMDb. I imagine 90% of that is just unverified crap. But I actually believe this because. Uh, ben Wheatley's last movie was High Rise, and Luke Evans was great in High Rise, and I, mm. I, you know, I already liked him. But Luke Evans was originally cast to do uh, the Vern part. Like Charlton hmm. Copley was not in this movie, and when Luke Evans had to leave for uh, Beauty and the Beast scheduling, they brought in Charlton Copley. And this is what, what also makes me not surprised at this. They reworked the role for him which I think clearly comes through. It's hard to imagine anyone else doing this part because this isn't isn't the part that Luke Evans would have played. I mean, I think once they knew Charlotte Copley was coming in, they wrote for him, and it shows, and he's very comfortable playing this kind of clown. Uh, 
And they paired him with Army, so it's an even weirder. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> they're almost their most distinctive faction uh, visually and well, and you guys aren't going to know this because you guys don't watch nearly enough movies that aren't really good. But the guy who plays uh, the guy who plays Harry, who uh, Kelly, want to think you called him the hair guy? Uh, did he make much of an impression on you guys? Uh, I'm not sure how to answer the. What do you mean by impression? He was really just as an actor. Did you like? I don't watch know who. He, I don't know who he is. So did he make much of an impression on you, Dingus? Like, I, I don't know if it's just because I know him from something else. I really liked him in this, and I just wondered if that if he stood out at all for you guys. He felt like a Judah Friedlander. I, I don't know. I don't know uh, what his name was. Well, what he, the actor's he's, name is. He's the guy. Oh, no. Right. So the actor's Jack Raynor. Uh, Jack Raynor. Okay. And he, you guys wouldn't know him from anything because I don't think he's been in a bunch of stuff. But uh, I, I really liked him in this partly because I liked – that his character was basically in the right. I mean, he wasn't lying about Steve-O. We find out that, yeah, Steve-O mm-hmm. really did the things that he did. Oh, okay, 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 okay. So, okay. so this is the guy who basically was on the highest moral standing, which, in a way, when you're looking at these characters, who's right, who's wrong, who deserves to get shot, who doesn't, you know, Steve-O clearly deserved to have his head crushed under the tire, but I'm <laughs> not sure anybody else really deserved what they got. And I certainly felt that Harry, the character played by Jack Raynor, he was the guy who had the, the highest moral standing for this to happen. Like he he clearly had he the, was caused the guy. it though. He caused it, but he had been most wronged. Uh, he is the guy who, yeah. he is the guy who was owed the most justice in this situation, mm. who didn't get it. Uh, so that actor, I, I liked the character as written. I liked the actor playing him because he's a he's a young. I think he's he's got to be Irish. Uh, he's a he's a guy who was in a movie with Tony Collette, which is in the category that Dingus has coined called junkies or tedious. And Tony Collette, it's one of those rare. It's not a very good movie because it does this weird third act shift. It kind of doesn't make sense. But there's a movie called Glassland where Tony Collette plays a a drunk, and she's just a hundred and 50% committed to playing this raging alcoholic, and she's amazing to watch in Glassland. But what also is really good about Glassland is the young guy playing her son, who you would look at him and think, yeah, he's just some pretty boy Irish actor. But he, he rises the occasion, and he's great in his scenes with Tony Collette, and it's this kid, Jack Raynor, who, who played Harry. Um, so I, I had a lot of goodwill for him already going in, but I really liked the character as well. Uh, and I think he's someone to sort of keep an eye on. I can imagine hmm. his career is really going to go places. Uh, did uh, you like uh, Steve, Did you like Sam Riley? I've never really been into Sam Riley, so I w- it's one of those things, Dingus, where I find Danny Houston annoying, so when he plays a jerk, like in Birth, <laughs> I'm like, yeah, he's great in that. So I kind of, Sam Riley is, I don't, I don't even really remember what I would, would remember him from, but uh, I, was, I was okay with him being the guy you're supposed to hate. Now, why, mm. why is it Control that you keep talking about? It's Control. I mean, I just love him in Control, and I love that movie so much that nobody will ever watch it. I just love the movie. I think he's great in it, and uh, so when I see him in something, I'm, I'm, I'm like, okay, I'm in. How did you feel about him playing a sniveling, beat-up, coward American? <laughs> I, I really liked that, actually. I liked that he was doing that. I, it, one of those things, though, is kind of an actor thing. It's just there are certain people – I'm just glad you're getting work. And if you're getting work doing this and you yeah. got work doing this, congratulations. That's great. I mean, there's a certain cast of characters that Ben Wheatley tends to like, like pull in from other movie from other movies that he's done, I think. Yeah. Michael uh, Smiley. I love that fellow. Yeah. Yeah. Michael Smiley, for instance. Um, but I, I really liked seeing Sam Riley because I haven't seen him in a while. 
I can't imagine this must have been a great shoot for a couple of reasons. I mean, just the cast, uh, <laughs> how much fun they seem to be having. But also, it was a shoot where get it every yeah. where everybody was present for every scene for the most part unless your character died but this wasn't a, you know okay Bree we're going to do your and Charlotte's scenes today uh, Army you're off for the next three days uh, okay Jack oh, wow. you're coming here like this is where all actors were always present with each other for every shot for the most part I uh, feel like it or feel like it, and even I mean, there were yeah, right, right, exactly. Like it. It's it definitely- actually really interesting to say because I wonder about the amount of setups they would be able to do given the budget they yeah. must have had. Well, and I imagine it was a tight schedule too. Like a, you know, this is like you know they lost Luke Evans because of Beauty and the Beast. Was there ever a chance they were going to lose Brie Larson because of King Kong? I mean, I, I don't know mm. the logistics of this, but uh, yeah, yeah, I can imagine it was a, a very tightly scheduled thing. Um, right, and what are things? Good, Kelly. I was just curious if he wrote this before High Rise, and then it was like his, because like it's his right. La La Land where he wrote it before. Well, I can't imagine that High Rise like did really well. Did anything? But but it had a lot of uh, buzz. Did like it? I it guess so. Yeah. Stylish, stylish movie. Like I remember it. I I just Every get day. this. <laughs> I, oh, I yeah. I it, it holds up. My God, that movie's so good. Dingus, it holds up better than when I was watching it. It yeah. holds up better every like every successive time I've seen it. I guess I've seen it four times now. I have liked it more. Uh, yeah. High Rise is just I, I you know I don't want to throw this word around, so maybe I'll pull back on this someday. But watching High Rise this fourth time, I think it's a masterpiece. High Rise just oh my has God. so much in it. I don't know about inadvertent, but there's so much little bits of brilliance that coalesce in High Rise. Uh, it's like I was saying, there are lines in high rise that just knock me on my ass that they're so good, and they're not showy, they're not flashy. Um, and, and Tom Hiddleston just watching this image of perfection undone as a metaphor for the fall of civilization. Uh, I, it makes me want to read the book to see how much no of that is – No redemption. Yeah, yeah, no redemption. In uh, this either. And how much of that is J.G. Ballard's book, the source mm. material, or how much of that is just how freaking good Ben Wheatley and Amy Jump are? I, I don't it's know. 70s, too. So he's a 70s. So player. let me ask you guys this. How important is it, or is it, that Free Fire is set in the 70s? Why is it set in the 70s? Well, because of the IRA, right? I mean, why, why, does, it, why does it need the IRA? Well, that's the reason for the gun buy, but I guess you could make it about Mexico. I mean, people are still buying. Yeah. yeah, exactly, exactly. So people are still buying guns from arms dealers. So, yeah, any because I, I think you're right, but do you know why? It, and no cell phones. Because of John Denver, probably largely. So Kelly, I think is onto something as well. No cell phones. This idea that you've got to isolate the characters. Uh, but Clothes. I think Dingus, you're absolutely right when you say because of the IRA, because and I. I I don't. I don't know if this was conscious, but I was certainly thinking about it watching the movie. If you look at who's going to be buying guns today, yeah, there's going to be some weird ickiness about oh, the brown people are the bad guys. You know, it's the Mexican oh. cartel or the Arabs. Uh, and I don't think that Ben Wheatley wanted to that he was thinking oh, people don't like Muslims. I don't think that was part of the equation. But the IRA, in a way, is one of the last sympathetic terrorists. Basically, people that would buy guns en masse that we have because the Irish, you know, we think of the Irish, quote unquote, as civilized. We don't think of Palestinians as civilized. We don't think of, of course, ISIS as civilized. You know, people who buy arms from gun dealers, the last noble people to do it were the IRA. 
White man terrorisms. Uh, It's interesting that you say that. I wonder if we we have listeners in England that would take umbrage with that as far as them being. Or Irish. (laughs) I mean, sure they would, but but there's, there's less of a sense of the other when you're dealing with, say, the Irish and the British than there is when you're dealing with the West and the Arab world, for instance. Right. Uh, but yeah, you're right, Dingus. To, to people in England who lost children in a bombing or something, yeah, or, or parents in a bombing or something, absolutely, the IRA are, are, are horrible. But just but I think that that's a decent Chris's. theory, and I, and I like that you brought it forth because I didn't think about it in those terms. Yeah, like and usually I challenge a movie when it chooses to be a period movie for for whatever reasons, but I was so, um, I don't know. I'm not going to say distracted. Uh, my senses were so overwhelmed by this movie that I didn't tend to question a lot of those types of things uh, because I, I know I'm going to watch it again. And I thought also part of the 70s, I thought everyone looked pretty badass. Like there was none yeah. of this like, hey, look how goofy people look in the 70s. That kind of, you know what uh, what uh, yeah, David Russell did with American Hustle? Oh, yeah, and Boogie Nights, like making fun of Christian Bale being like bald and having to do the comb over or whatever. Like there this was wasn't this affected. Of, yeah, exactly. It wasn't affected and it wasn't making fun of them. Like they looked like badass people who were badass criminals, I think, would, would look. Like nobody looked like they were being made fun of, uh, even with sideburns, with uh, the suits, with the with Army beard. Hammer's beard and stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, How much uh, did you guys oh, – go ahead, Tom. And I just want to say, you know, uh, dressing Brie, Brie Larson, whatever she was. Brie Larson, gosh, she looked so good. Just uh, as like a super hot 70s, 70s chick. Yeah, man. That hair's rocking. She uh, was smart. She was funny. She was yeah. quiet when she needed to be, and she also smoldered. I mean there's this – she had this whole great – this whole great arc that she played. I really liked her, and and it's hard to do when you have that many people. Did she say? Did I hear her at one point say "men"? Like, was that was that one of her lines? She said. She yes. actually says, "Ugh, men." Good, right? I thought I heard that word. I agree with her. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to know how much you guys laughed during this because Chris Parkinson also Chris Parkinson objects to the lack of overhead shots because he thought that would have like given you an idea of where people were. Which, sure. Uh, with with all due respect to you, Chris, I disagree because I I like the sense of confusion in this movie. Um, but that's kind of me. But he also said he laughed quite a lot during this movie. I found myself laughing quite a lot during this movie. It was the opposite reaction of the person I saw it with. So I want to hear what you guys have to say. <laughs> well, it's clearly a comedy and not in the sense of comedy like here's the joke, here's the setup, here's the punchline. I mean it's clearly played to as a, as a black comedy to show the yeah. absurdity of these people shooting each other, the absurdity of everybody having a gun. The absurdity of how effective or ineffective a gun is, because guns really, like, like in, you know, don't get me started. Well, just in modern warfare, the point of a gun isn't necessarily to shoot someone; it's to make them too scared to shoot back at you. Like suppressing mm. fire is the main point of gunfire. When you look at how ammo is expended in a war, it's not to shoot the other guy; it's just to pour lead in his direction so his morale breaks and he leaves and he gives up. Most bullets. Move. A vast majority of bullets don't hit anything that they're trying to hit. Like, so I, I like that huh. in this movie, in that nobody, you know, things weren't. This, this wasn't a movie about about some people who are like crack shots, and even even the professionals, even the calm professionals like Ord, didn't hit things. <laughs> like, because mm-hmm. guns don't do that. That guns are just supposed to freak other people out. The sound of the gun, the impact of the bullet, a ricochet, whatever. For the most part, the gun isn't about 
Yeah, it's going to hit something. It's about the well, fear the of getting hit. Were. Well, is that, do you think that plays into why the movie is titled the way it is? Oh, I wonder if they played with other titles. Because uh, going in, you see on the poster, it's a bunch of people holding guns. And I didn't know if it was going to be like his commentary as a as a Brit on American gun culture. Uh, so I, I do like cool. – Yeah, it sounds cool, and it certainly does it capture – it does sound seventies, yeah, and it captures the spirit of I think what the movie is doing. Uh, it's just people freely firing, yeah. Uh, so, but I, I also am with you, Dingus, in that I'm glad there were no overhead shots because an overhead shot, and we talked a little bit about this in our three by three of overhead shots. It's a change of perspective. You are looking at things in a way that they are not normally seen. It's a superhuman sort of transcends the human view mm-hmm. perspective on things. And this movie didn't never wanted to take us out of that. And I can understand it's to the detriment of clear choreography. Like you mentioned uh, before, it's not always clear who's shooting at whom or who's got cover from whom and whether that's by design or it just turned out that way because of how it was shot. I don't know, but it works for me. And it certainly added to the sense of, being scared at any time and also the fact that there were no leads i kind of felt like at any time anybody could get hit anywhere uh and Mm -hmm. it was just a chaotic uncontrolled situation uh like the title says so yeah you're right ding it's like free fire another studio note would have been like in a studio movie if someone gets out from behind cover right (laughs) they get shot instantly but in this there's constant times where someone gets out and then no one shoots because they're waiting to see if someone else is going to do it. Yeah, yeah. And they're just deciding. <laughs> and when even when the black dude's running amok with like shooting his own, shooting at his own dudes, Arnold <laughs> Hammer's like, no, no, I don't want this one. <laughs> or when who is it when uh, when Killian Murphy? Is it the, oh is it the black dude where he's he's aiming the gun at, at Gary and Gary yeah. looks at him and Killian just sort of moves the gun aside and puts his hands up like I don't want any part of it. Right. Like he just sort of opts out of that particular exchange of gunfire yeah. and they sort of have an unspoken agreement. Okay, we're we're not shooting each other. <laughs> right. But the guy has brain damage possibly, so it's Oh yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, like you said, I mean, I think that's clearly part of what's going on and he's just so freaked out and there's something wrong. Yeah, brain damage. Uh but maybe they think, okay, cool, he can go shoot them if I let him. You guys keep saying Gary. Who are you talking about? Isn't the black guy saying dude? Gary? He was in the Opsis. He wasn't. His name's mean, Gary in the Opsis. Isn't it Gary, are you, though? Are you talking to uh, talking about Babu Sise? I think what? So. I don't know what you just said. I think said. his name is Martin. Kelly Wand, his name is Martin. Why'd you make me think it was Gary? Gary. Where'd you get Gary from? <laughs> Gary's the guy that was. You guys, because he was talking about the hair dude. That's Harry. And so I. No, I, I know I'm it pretty is. Pretty sure. Gary is the guy who is piloting the submarine in Fast uh, Fate of the Furious right, during right, the Gary. synopsis. Gary is free. <laughs> Gary. Right. Gary. Kelly Wand, it's Martin. I don't know how you could not remember that. I think it's Martin, but also Kelly Wand, it's Connor. Uh <laughs> Jesus, really. That that just happened. Uh, by the uh, way, I want to tell you that the person I saw it with, which is a close friend of ours named Alexandra, um she walked out of this movie. What? Whoa. No way. Interesting. <laughs> how far in? Uh Basically, uh, okay, the exact moment she walked out, although she walked out emotionally much before this, the exact moment she walked out, <laughs> she actually crossed my line of vi- vision the moment the van crushes his head. Well, so she <laughs> – Now, I guess I, she's it's not into like – over. Yeah, <laughs> she got to see most of it. So she's not yeah. into 
I mean, does Gore? I don't remember. Does Gore bother her? Is that the it? Thing? Really does. Uh, so she likened it to, um, and you it. you actually brought this up earlier, Tom. Uh, she talked about Green Room afterward when we were talking about. And she talked about a couple of movies, but she talked about Green Room and how she just doesn't need to see. And she called it body dysmorphia, but I don't think that's the proper term. But the, the you know just seeing that kind of bodies being cut up and grossified. Um, yeah, the term the term is gore. I mean, it's just gore. Yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. gore. Because yeah, body yeah. dysmorphia is another thing. That's like from the fly. Uh, but uh, but I understand what she was saying, and at that point. And I was what I was worried about her because she's susceptible to headaches. Was that the amount of shooting would would trigger a headache of hers? That's not what happened at all. It's just that she couldn't stand the amount of violence, and it it just had no interest for her. But she actually got up and walked out, and I was shocked. And she was too because she she doesn't do that. Uh, but she did give me permission to say that. Well, aren't you aren't you're supposed to leave at that point too, Dingus? No, I can't because I have to do – otherwise I have not seen the movie. The internet and, insists. And what you wanted me to tell you guys is, is that technically she has not seen the movie. Right, exactly. Craig character I've seen the movie. Right, right. Yeah, she has not seen it. She missed uh, – uh, yeah. Ben Wheatley in the little bit afterwards. and uh, So we saw John Wick, and one of the things that I find inter- interesting watching a movie like that is realizing that nobody's firing guns on the set of John Wick. John Wick, all the guns are, are CG. It's Keanu Reeves holding the gun and the stuntman pretending he's getting shot. And then later in, they, they add the effect and the sound effect. Uh, ben Wheatley, and I, I think this plays in the little press bit that the Arclight played, Ben Wheatley said, yeah, we, we made it practical as much as possible. And I think it, it shows. It's part of mm-hmm. just the, the impact you feel here. I mean, and, and Ben Wheatley pointed out he wanted the actors to be flinching at things. Like mm-hmm. he didn't want this John Wick cool, like I'm so badass, I'm impervious to gunfire. He didn't want that. He wanted the actors to shy away from a gun going off the way a real person would, and I thought that read that read like you could, you could see that yeah. on screen. That's an example of just this is what what this is what it's like when you're not CGing the gunshots, which I really yeah. Like. And look what that's you a, get, look the value you get. That's a really good point because if if you've never shot a gun, you don't understand how it affects you as the person shooting it. I mean, I remember, it has an effect on you. Last time I fired a gun was with you, Dingus. Yeah. And uh, I remember I just did not I, – I don't think either of us enjoyed that. We were both like, oh, this is gross. This just it, really – It has an emotional weird. effect on you afterward. Yeah. It has a yeah. weird emotional effect on you. And I don't get missed. people who – no, Dingus limp-wristed it. The guy made fun of the way Dingus uh, was holding the pistol. It's hilarious. It was a threesome? Yeah, yeah that's it. <laughs> <laughs> we went to a shooting range, and they have the guy who makes uh, sure you know what you're doing. And uh, he actually – he made fun of me for limp-wristing it, and Dingus is fond of reminding me of that. <laughs> Uh, did you notice in the credits, however, there like was <laughs> there was a, a visual surprised. effects studio was cr- in the credits. Do you guys know what the yeah. CG was? I'm pretty sure I know. The nose? Yeah, the nose kill, I believe. Yeah. Uh, Charlotte yeah. Copley's uh, nose. That's yeah. great. Did, did Alexander like that part? <laughs> she didn't see it. She was gone by that point. Well, oh, that's, that's, I that thought it was before, Right, right, yeah. That might have been the. That might have been like the. She was okay. That's the last one. If there's anything else like that, I'm leaving. So that when Sam Riley's head gets smushed, she was like, okay, I gave it a chance. You know what? I would tell Alexandra is like those two characters were trying to get killed for most of them. <laughs> <laughs> it is. It is amazing. This is one of the things I like. One of the reasons I love seeing a movie with somebody, uh, with people I really like, and I love going to a movie theater because you can feel the way the theater's reacting, and you can feel the way the person next to you is withdrawing or coming into the movie. And I could feel at 
over the course of the movie, her withdrawing from the movie. I would have hated that because I would have hated knowing that oh, she 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 didn't yeah. like it and she was having to wait out in the lobby. I, I just would. I felt bad. Oh, I had to say, it. I said, I'm sorry a number of times that you're having to go through this ordeal. Um, but it, it doesn't high affect rise? what she should have known. I don't know. Well, I didn't like High Rise, and and it's yeah, funny yeah. to hear high rise Tom talk slow. about. He's seen it four times. And he makes me want to see it again, but every time I think about certain images in that movie, I don't know what it is, but the oh. idea of seeing it again makes my skin crawl a little bit. I don't know. There's, there's just, there's an element of that movie that just didn't work for me, and I'm, you know, I know I'm going to have to see it again because I'm really respecting the way this director and writer do things. Uh, but it's weird that some movies just have that. They kind of they're abrasive on your emotions. I don't know how to say that, but. No, no, that, that's a good way to put it. I mean, I, yeah, I think that's a very good way to put it. That that makes me want to ask you because I I thought of you when this line came up. Thing is, how did you feel when early on? I don't I don't know if it's Michael Smiley uh, who says, "Nice job bringing the fag and the retard." Yeah, uh, boy, that- it's it was very weird to hear that. Um, but I'm kind of embarrassed to admit this, but uh, my kid really likes. Um, he loved it, the movie. No, he he really was crazy about this. No, he's he's watched some of the online videos of the Saturday Night Live Celebrity Jeopardy um, things because he just thinks <laughs> that they're hilarious and he thinks the Sean Connery thing is hilarious. And he doesn't even and know what Jeopardy is. <laughs> he doesn't yeah, know what Jeopardy thing. is. He There's doesn't no reason know. A kid that age would know yeah. that. Yeah. He doesn't know who most of them are, but he still understands humor and he understands the things that are funny about it. Wait a minute, Dickus, you've let your son hear Will Ferrell say the words "buckfutter." No, we haven't gotten there yet. All right. It's um, coming up, just but, so you know. But at two different instances, Will Ferrell goes, are you retarded to, uh, to I think, maybe Tobey Maguire playing Keanu Reeves or a couple of different characters? He's, he okay. actually says, are you retarded? And I can see my son visibly. I can see him flinch because he's been taught. Uh, chip off the old know, block. He's in a, he's in a very uh, inclusive school that – I mean, he understands that that's not a word that you throw around. Uh, and I saw him really flinch during that, during watching those videos. And that was just a couple of days ago. So when I went, went to see this movie, Tom, and I heard that line of dialogue, I thought mainly about that moment where my son flinched during that. Did you flinch then? I, not really because of okay. the period again. I mean, I okay. think that uh, I think just for me now. Well, basically, I think that you can grandfather in certain bits of humor as well as you can grandfather in certain words that we don't use today. I think uh, Quentin Tarantino overdoes that and tries to get away with it far too much, but I think you can do it to good effect. And I think that this doesn't bother me because it feels real to the time. That wasn't politically correct at that time, so of course that character is going to talk like that. I actually, and I imagine you're the same way, Kelly. The moment I, because I actually, I thought that was a funny line, and I felt about that line the way I feel about when I'm watching a movie and I don't know what the rating is, and somebody says "fuck" a second time, and I know, okay, I'm in an R-rated movie. They can talk however they want. Good. So when he says anything can happen, anything can happen, and this is not being like nobody's trying to 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 clean this up or sanctify that. Nobody's trying to make this. Uh, is trying to whitewash anything here. So when they say the fag and the retard, I'm like, yep, it's true to the period piece. There's going to be smoking. Mm-hmm. There's going to be cussing. You know, they're Watch calling her for a, grownups. A, yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's a it's a movie where it's it's not doing thing. It's not a, it's not worried about offending people. Yeah. It's in a way, it's kind of like. Uh, 
Well, I was gonna say it's like when you when you see the word nigger in Mark Twain, it's very different than when someone like Tarantino does it. Like mm-hmm. it, it's and it's weird. Like Cormac McCarthy also. Like you you see these, these writers who you really admire who might still be alive and they use that word. Uh, and I feel like certain people should be allowed to use these words for stories they're telling. And it's a studio note thing, Kelly Wand. Like if they'd said it before and it was a PG thirteen movie. That line, the studio would have made them change that line. Yeah. Yeah. So I see that, and I'm like, okay. Because they're so retarded. One, two, three. Not only you and me got 180 degrees, and I'm caught in between. Counting one, two, three. Feet apart, not free. Getting down with three feet. Everybody loves old Kelly Wan, you're not allowed to do that. Only Ben Wheatley and Amy Jump. How dare you? I'm giving the studio notes in both ways. This is not a period podcast, Kelly Wan. Uh, what do you think would happen, Kelly Wan, if Dingus did watch High Rise again? Um, it'd turn him gay. <laughs> Wait, what? Because of how hot Tom Hiddleston is? I was just trying to think of another. He yeah. already knows that. Oh, you were just trying to be correct. If you'd really gone on the full nine yards, Kelly Wan, you would have said it would make him a f word well i thought i was trying to make it seem like it could really happen <laughs> whatever okay i don't i don't think is i don't think high rise i still don't think high rise is for you no it's, it's not. probably not but i can appreciate things that aren't for me uh but it does i don't know what it is it's like i don't want to watch the movie delicatessen either again even though i like i think the movie is well made <laughs> there are things about it i don't want to see again and, it, that's and it's your that. line in the sand but you didn't even like High Rise, though. I mean, you're, you even conceding whether it's well made. When we did the podcast, you just didn't like it flat out. No, like you, exactly yeah, right. Yeah. You're exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but I, doesn't I, have squashed heads. <laughs> Kelly, Wan, are you with me on on calling High Rise a masterpiece? Yeah, all of Ben Wheatley. I liked uh, the Field in England. Ew. Ew. What? Because it's another period piece from the seventies. No. It, oh my god. Maybe it's I like a good it. student film. No, it's not for you, Tom. Thank but I, okay. I, Ben Wheatley for me is a high watermark of cinema. Should Dingus, should Dingus watch Kill List? Yeah, I don't know what it is, but he should. And then tell me if I. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you haven't seen Kill List? No, I don't see oh. movies about paperwork. <laughs> uh, I want been... Yeah, it's it's Ben Wheatley's second movie. His first was this gangster thing, which I haven't seen, called Down Terrace. His second was a uh, Kill List, which is a uh, it's basically uh, had a Pulp Fiction. If Pulp Fiction was a horror movie, oh, that's good. Yeah, so I, I'm not crazy about it though. But uh, so there you go. All right, let's 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 do a three by three. Kelly Wand, put your gun down and let's do a three by three of Mexican standoffs. By the way, I don't trust Kelly to use the word, the term high watermark appropriately. Uh, what do you mean? <laughs> I've been in the bong. What do you mean? So, I don't trust me to do it then. Take that. So the three by this this could be a criminal enterprise. The three by three police will not be patrolling during this this topic. But what? I did I did mention a little bit earlier. Just because I think it's kind of I don't know about subjective. There's a there's a well, One no, you read, that, you read an actual definition, right. and I went with that. And I think right, that's... right, and you should go with that. But I think I don't. We didn't get many people right in. But I think when people think about uh, Mexican standoffs, they don't really have a clear understanding that there's 
what makes it different from a regular standoff. For instance, mm. and, and let's talk about this, why isn't Green Room a Mexican standoff? Because it's in Oh, Vermont. I see. Can no, I review? Because the What'd third party doesn't... Well, it doesn't require... A Mexican standoff doesn't necessarily it. require three parties. Like, you can have a Mexican standoff with two parties. A Mexican standoff, the, the definition I read... It's a siege. Two or, two or more, yeah. Uh, right. It's uh, it, well, Mexican standoff is not a siege, by the way. Oh, no, green room is a right. green room. That's is what I'm a saying. Siege. Green room's not a Mexican standoff. Yeah, green room. It's about people who can't leave. It's about bad guys imp- trapping some good guys. In a Mexican right. standoff, neither side can move forward or, or retreat. Neither side can back off or advance just- without. Uh, without everybody losing. Uh, it's a mutual right. shared destruction situation where if you act, or if you don't act, or if you withdraw, you will lose. And that is the case. Right. Both parties, it can be three parties, it can be two parties, it can be six parties. Um, oh, Anchorman too. I just thought. What, of. I, what I don't like about the definition is this thing at the end of it, and I looked it up again just to reread what you had, what you had said, is that it uh, it, basically, unless acted upon by an outside force, which is basically like, I, I think inertia. I mean, well, um, you know, I mean that, that you're right, Dingus, because the the three that I picked, and I tried really hard to not just do three Quentin Tarantino movies, but the three that I picked yeah. uh, are Mexican standoffs in that sense. In that, if it's really a Mexican standoff, nobody is going to escape. Like nobody's going to move forward. Nobody's going to retreat. So part of what the definition is saying, if it wants to be super particular, it's not a Mexican standoff if there's a way out of it. And I don't necessarily mm. agree with that, but that's sort of what it's saying. Is that if you find a way out, then you realize it wasn't a Mexican standoff all along. I don't agree with that, and that's why the 3x3 police aren't on patrol. Cause okay, were, well, glad, because I would have totally failed at this. Yeah, yeah, because if they were, that would be that, – I think that would be a, a difficult – seems too point. narrow a definition. It does seem too narrow, and there are great movie standoffs, but I do feel that only some of them qualify for this moniker Mexican standoff. Standoff. Uh, but well, uh, so but if it's I, a third party, it's basically a Deus Ex Machina. You're going, it only gets in the list of Deus Ex Machina shows. But you know what? We'll talk about during it's some not a, It's up. not a third party. It's an outside event. It's an outside, some sort of outside force. But I guess that's kind of Deus Ex Machina. Yeah, yeah. Or Deus. It's some, some, something from outside, but – An irresistible force. I kind of stretch it a little bit. So anyway. So that's the thing is I, I – just because oh, really? I, there are so many cool standoffs, the distinction between a Mexican standoff and a regular standoff is, is kind of nitpicky, and it's interesting to discuss. But I'm more interested in – cool movie standoffs with an eye towards what makes it Mexican or not, so nobody's going to jail. Uh, Or the wall. Here's another question I have for you, and I didn't know, I I don't know where the term has come from, Uh, and if you look this up, there, you know, it's one of these terms that's been around for a while, the origins Hmm. aren't clear. It's It's not from the Alamo, I bet. That wasn't a standoff. It's first appearance in print, (laughs) that was definitely not a standoff, very good, Kelly. Well, it was a standoff in Mexico. Right. The Cold War was a Mexican standoff. So the, the, You're the, a Mexican. Being, being called Mexican, the first appearance in print was describing a baseball game. Uh, so <laughs> what? at some point in, in one, it appeared in print as a description about a, a baseball game with an inconclusive outcome. Uh, now the word, empire but, came along. The term had clearly been around longer, but this is according to uh, – where did I find this? Baseball. For guys, some 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 website where somebody wrote a blog entry. Uh, he claimed that that was the first written entry. It has, of course, been around longer. There's a suggestion that it came from Australia, by the way, that that's where the term originated. Uh, some of the theories are that 
calling it a Mexican standoff is a slur. And I don't know that that's the case. I feel more that calling it a Mexican standoff is a way to give it a, a sort of an exotic or unique angle. Um, I can't imagine that it would be a slur. I don't think it is. You might think, like, it's, is it because, like, Mexican bandits uh, were too cowardly to shoot? I, I don't know. Like, I, I don't yeah. think it's a slur either, Dingus, but it's That's definitely- a total Chinese telephone, if you think about it. <laughs> There's the... <laughs> There's but Australia is uh, England's Mexico, so it should be Australian standoff. Very good, yeah. And we're Canada's. Uh, there's a moment, Kelly. <laughs> what? There's a great <laughs> moment in in the office when Oscar uh, says that he's a Mexican, and Michael says, oh, "Could Mexican. you use a less offensive term?" Right, I do love that. Yeah. So I, I think that's the thinking behind this idea that oh, a Mexican standoff is a slur. Because a, a Mexican standoff is not an insult. It's not like saying a Polish joke, or you know, it's not like you're telling a joke about someone. It's not implying that it's a it's a dumb standoff or a less a lesser standoff. Like a Mexican right. standoff is the cooler version of a standoff. So so anyway, all that said, this isn't about. This is the worst margarita I've ever had. It's practically Mexican. Right. <laughs> So this isn't about tripping people up on definitions, but this is an, it, it is interesting to consider the specifics of a Mexican version of versus a, a vanilla standoff. So all that oh, said, geez. let's get on to regular standoffs or, or re, uh, regular three by three picks, starting with Kelly Wand, who's introducing next week's topic. Kelly Wand, third favorite Mexican standoff. Go. An American standoff's just a shootout. You can quote me on that, but I don't think you will. Uh, my number three Mexican standoff is from the motion picture. This is the only Tarantino I uh, I, I went with because there's some. Uh, my third one is True Romance because at the end it's a three-way Mexican standoff, and I couldn't think of another one where there's three sides going at the same time. I don't remember the standoff, so can you? It's drug lords. Um and cops and mafia guys. There's like two gangsters and like oh, and, and break in the middle of. The are store. they in a room? Yeah, they're in a hotel. Yeah, it's like a hotel room. room. Yeah, and Christian Slater's in the middle of all of them, right? He's in the bathroom when it starts and then it comes out. <laughs> That's gonna eye be shot out, like Carl. He gets his yeah. eye shot out. I don't remember yeah. that. You think he's dead for a minute? Patricia Arquette's really bummed out, but then they, he just puts a patch on it like Carl. He's fine. Uh, here's a question. Who? So is there a standoff where people are uneasily aiming their guns at each other for a while before it breaks out into gunfire? Yeah, and screaming at each other and talking shit to each other. So who Scream- starts it? Because this is an interesting thing I wanted to watch for my picks is who started it? Like who's the one who broke the standoff? Do you uh, know in True Romance? Well, Chris Penn is one of the is one of the cops who breaks into the hotel room. So since they're instigating it, I guess it's them. But Bronson Pinchot <laughs> – Danger. Wow. And Bronson Pinchot, he's related to Cillian Murphy. I think they're cousins. He's the get- brother of the guy who wrote uh, Inherent Vice, the book. Um, but he is lying on a couch wired. He has a wire on him. And in fact, he's not really in the standoff because he's lying on the couch in the middle of it. But then when one of the cops calls him by name, like, shut up, Johnny, <laughs> then... One of the gangs like, wait, he knows your name? And then that's what wind up, winds up breaking the standout. And then someone shoots Bronson Pinchot for being ah. a mole. And then everyone shoots everybody. Bronson well, Pinchot. as in Free Fire, even after the first shooting, like, Chris is still thinking, like, 
Wait, maybe we don't have to go to war over that guy. <laughs> no, we do. Okay, here we go. It's already happening. I can't stop it. All right, yeah. so True Romance, written by uh, Tarantino, directed by Tony Scott. Uh, yeah, is- I like that movie. I remember not caring about it till I saw it and going, oh, wait, I should have seen this sooner. Remember Brad Pitt? He's funny in it. So the oh yeah yeah he's a, is he a stoner or no that, yeah, yeah yeah he's, he's like a, he's so much stoner roommate yeah, yeah yeah he's not acting <laughs> yeah he likes he's like just hanging out on the couch yeah he's hanging on the couch and a bunch of gunmen just come in while he's super baked uh, and he just watches them stupidly would then, that have been pre Thelma and Louise no it's post yeah no, it's okay. after okay barely and that that is and a high water mark by the way he has to draw them a map thing so it's kind of like a go. When Timothy Oliphant draws a map to uh, what's his fuck? <laughs> his name is Connor. Yeah, Connor. Sorry, Gary. <laughs> Gary Connor. Biggest third favorite Mexican standoff. Fascinating <laughs> one. All right, this is from the movie The Untouchables. Uh, the quote I would use from it is, "You got him. Yeah, I got him." Oh, that's uh, a good one. Damn it. So it's it's the one on the uh, yeah, on the stairs. It's great. Um, Oh, the baby yeah. carriage scene. Yeah. The baby carriage scene. Iconic. Iconic. Rich man's Eisenstein. So, so the reason it works for the definition is because um, uh, Elliot Ness uh, has his gun. Uh, well, actually, oh, is, is stopping the guy who's trying to take. <laughs> Thank you. Did you hear that? You just had a... Kevin Costner just said hi to me. Yeah. I had to I'm... practice uh, falling and stopping a baby carriage with my leg for days and days, dingus. Thought no one noticed until you mentioned me. Appreciate it. I'm kind of blushing right now. It's kind of weird. Dance with Carriage is my name among the Cherokee. No, Kevin Costner does face off against two socks and dances with wolves, but it's not really a Mexican stand-up. It's more of a Native American stand-up. So, uh, anyway... Uh, Kevin Costner stopped the carriage and the guy taking the accountant out of the train station or trying to get to the train with the accountant. I think the accountant's playing by a dude named Jack Kehoe and I really like that actor. Anyway, uh, Kevin Costner has his gun trained on the guy who's trying to take the accountant out and the guy does this thing and this is what made me think of it, Tom, because you brought this up because of the standoff in um, 8 of the Furious, right? Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah. And it's this moment of I've got my gun on you and he's got his gun on the accountant's head. He basically turns on him. He's like, me and the accountant are, are getting out of here. And if we if you don't let us get out of here, I'm just going to kill the accountant. And then you've got nothing because the accountant is going to tell him what the ledger means. And the ledger is the only way they can – the only way that Elliot Ness is going to be able to convict Capone of tax evasion. That the only way he's going to be able to interpret what this book means is is by the accountant. And they're trying to sneak him out of the train station, but that he won't let that happen. And so – for this particular thing, the external force turns out to be Andy Garcia, who is actually a part of the whole scene, but he's down there below him on the floor, below Elliot Ness on the floor. He's playing Stone, George Stone, or Giuseppe Petri, um, and he's got his revolver, and he's an expert marksman. And uh, Elliot Ness, you know, he can't withdraw. Uh, because the accountant gets away and the case is lost and Al Capone gets to continue ruling Chicago. The other dude can't withdraw uh, because he will get shot and the accountant will be taken or he'll be killed by Al Capone for giving up the accountant. 
Um, the accountant can't do anything or he'll get shot in the head. There's a lot of different things going on in this scene, but the external force is the fact that George Stone can hit anything from a mile away, apparently. And so that's, uh, that's the untouchables Mexican standoff. Uh, Brian De Palma staging that kind of stuff. It's just like, uh, that's definitely in his wheelhouse, isn't it? Yeah. yeah, it's gorgeous. And speaking of overhead shots, that you know, Chris brought up overhead shots earlier. That was my number one at the beginning of our overhead shot of that movie. Oh, man, I freaking love that. Dingus, The Untouchables might might be your new Midnight Run or Rushmore. It certainly is making a lot of appearances. Okay. These tend to sort of like repeat because I'll watch it for a specific uh, three by three, and then it'll give me ideas for further three by threes. All right. Uh, okay, my third favorite. Uh, st- <laughs> I will. I will say. I don't know if this is a spoiler. There aren't any good Mexican standoffs in the movie Trespass. Field of mm. Dreams has baseball in it too. <laughs> we don't actually just, play. Just, we just throw it around in the field. And call it baseball. It's just catch, really. Uh, what? Somebody. Somebody chokes on a hot dog in that movie. Did you know that? That was in my trailer, Dingus. Oh, whoa, never to whoa. Mention it. whoa, whoa. All what? Right. What's happening? Kevin Costner, get out of here with that foul talk. That's this is terrible. Not, this is a family podcast. You brought the yeah. I'm going to hit you with a crowbar till you go away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that wow. was Tom. Yeah, wow. Right. That, that's that, that's going to earn you a lot of bailing, Kelly Wan. You can get a lot of bailing out of that. Dingus that's yeah. not how that, there's no exchange rate for that. <laughs> yeah, there is. <laughs> It's like a carbon tax. Dingus just played the paid the bailing tax. Yeah. Yeah. He My was number good th- too. Yeah, that was a good thing. It's more of that. My number three pick. Okay, so here's I'm gonna give you the setup. So all mine are are I, I I specifically didn't pick Mexican standoffs that didn't end and just everything breaks down and everybody gets killed pretty much because that is what makes it. The, some that are going to come up I want to talk about because I watch them and I kind of feel like they're cheating in a way, but that's okay. Hmm. But these are the ones that I feel didn't cheat and saw it through to the end. Uh, and there's some great examples of this. Here's my third favorite, and this is partly because this movie just meant a lot to me when I, when I was a lot younger. Uh, so Emilio Estevez and Harry Dean Stanton are going into a liquor store uh. just to get beer. Uh, and while they're in there to get beer, these two armed punks come in to rob the liquor store. But it turns out, because Emilio Estevez's character, this is a repo man, is, is a punker, is a punk rocker guy. And so he knows these guys. And he's like, oh, hey, I know you. And they're coming in to rob the this, this store. And so while they're sort of brandishing the gun at Emilio Estevez saying, yeah, we're crazy. We're going to rob the store. Harry Dean Stanton sort of slowly backs out of the punk's field of view and pulls out his gun and points it at the punks who are robbing the liquor store. But what he doesn't see is that behind him in the aisle, there is a security guard who comes around the corner and now sees these three people with guns, two <laughs> punks robbing the store and Harry Dean Stanton. And so he points his, he pulls out his gun and yells at Harry Dean Stanton, drop it, motherfucker. Now Harry Dean Stanton looks and he knows, and now the punks see Harry Dean Stanton. So we've got these three parties, none of whom is clear about who is with whom and who can trust whom and why someone is pointing a gun at someone else. And Alex Cox totally plays with this by showing his people pointing their gun, you know, shooting. I'm pointing at him. No, pointing at him, pointing at her. Nobody knows who to point at. So this is a standoff where (laughs) – and and by the way, it's eventually revealed that the proprietor of the liquor store has a shotgun under the counter. So once things – one of the punks, exactly. One of the punks opens fire, 
and Alex Cox. And I think so much of Repo Man, by the way, holds up. It's just he's a really good director and there's a lot of good writing in it. Uh, But Alex Cox clearly shoots. Okay, she shoots him. He shoots her. He shoots him. He shoots him. He gets shot by him. And now everybody's dropped and Emilio Estevez is just standing there with the one survivor of the of the shootout. Uh, So the, the Mexican standoff at the end of Repo Man. Uh, with all the punks in the liquor store. And so, by the way, in this, yep, everybody gets shot. Uh, the the girl who started it, Stanton, who opened fire. The, here's a weird thing. I'd forgotten this. Harry Dean Stanton, he does a thing where Alex Cox shoots it where he's he shows Harry Dean Stanton clamping his head, his hand against the side of his head like he got shot there. And his gun arm swings through a bunch of ketchup bottles. Uh, so and and but that, the. Dude. But the weird thing then is Emilio Estevez, after talking to one of the punkers that he knew and then talking to the girl who's who's alive before she leaves, he doesn't like kneel down with Harry Dean Stanton. Like he does. He just leaves. He, he just hmm. bails on his friend. And it's it's the he does it twice in the movie, which is weird is he just walks away from Harry Dean Stanton having been shot and hurt. But anyway, Harry Dean Stanton survives hmm. later in the hospital and Otto goes and sees him and apologizes for leaving him in, in the liquor store. But, yeah, everybody gets shot. Uh, Harry Dean Stanton doesn't die. And actually, the girl who started it doesn't get shot. She's the guy who gets to walk away. Oh, she's so the you, free. You remember that. She's the Brie, right? She's the Brie. <laughs> As opposed to the camembert. Now, is it just me, or is that last shot of Brie Larson, like, weirdly sexy? When she turns Which around and she's not. Like, ah, okay, good point, Kelly Wand. Well, it's, what's, what's annoying is that well, I can't talk about the end. Sorry. All right. Well, Dingus, rewind the podcast and mention it there. Now I'm curious what you're going to say there. Yeah, say it, Dingus, if you don't want the end of Free Fire. You know what? If you're listening to this, you've sat through the Free Fire podcast, right? What's weird for you, Dingus? I've given uh, you I'll, I'll, I'll be uh, as oblique as possible. Um, the director doesn't allow that. He, he allows for oh, different interpretations right. of the end, which in some cases I'm fine with. I'm not quite sure I'm fine with it here, but it's all right. I think what he was saying, though, is that the actors all had their own stories about what right. happens. And yeah, so. But he didn't he didn't give a, a sense of this is what I think happened or that I, he had even decided. I he just let the actors decide. Right. I disagree. I think the movie does is pretty clear about what happens, though. Yeah. Like he I may not say it too, interview, but he but, yeah. I think he seemed weird. Yeah. yeah. Maybe that I, was just service uh, to the actors. Well, and also it's these just. The way these dumb questions get asked at press junkets and yeah, edited right. around, and I, you know, never trust anything. A celebrity, a director, a writer, a producer, never trust anything anybody ever says during a press junket. They're exhausted. They're tired. They've been ask, answering the same dumb questions for 20 times. They're just trying to get publicity for the movie. Anything you ever hear during a press junket, useless. Yeah. John point. Cusack was an American beauty. He's an <laughs> idiot. <laughs> Only trust podcasters. <laughs> All right, Kelly Wan, it's time for your second favorite Mexican standoff in a movie. Uh, my number two is um, in the motion picture Face Off. Um, John Woo loves his Mexican standoffs. Not how you say that. Say the name yeah. properly. Face Off. No. Face hyphen, face forward slash off. Thing okay, is do good. it for him. Okay, face slash off. Come on. Oh, I just thought you had to like. I thought you had to make some sort of a like a a, a vocal acknowledgement by just pausing. You had to go face off. Like you had to do it like that. No, I just nice. like face, it's like face slash off because face it's slash. very thematic. That makes, that that makes it sound thing. way more violent than it is, though. 
this hyphen looks too clinical. Let's make it diagonal. Okay, cool. Now they'll know how to say it. <laughs> Do you remember John the Wu char- fans are very picky about that particular symbol. Do you what? remember my favorite character name from that movie? Oh, Spurgeon uh, Tanner. Spurgeon yeah. Tanner. Spurgeon Tanner. Spurgeon Tanner. Oh, my God. Paulders. Is it Connor or Martin? Connor, Gary, Marlene. It's not Seaman Beaumont. We know that's from uh, that's from K9, the Widowmaker. It's Caster Troy. Oh, yeah, I just right. love, oh, yeah, I love Troy. Nicholas going, I'm Caster Troy. I'm Caster Troy. And then he starts laughing, crying at the same time with a, yep. with a, a diagonal hyphen between the word laughing and crying. But uh, the reason that face off so awesome, I mean, stand up. Stand off, face stand off. Stand, stand flash off. Stand face off. Is uh, they have different faces during it, so they have different bodies, so they have different reflexes. So it must be really confusing for the characters because Nicolas Cage has John Travolta's. Where is it? When does this happen? At the end, it's the final face off. Is it the one in the mirror? I don't remember. No, it's with guns. They don't use mirrors. There's like one. There's one weird now. scene. There's one weird scene where they're both on opposite sides of a mirror and they're pointing a gun through the mirror. Isn't that? Doesn't that happen? Yeah, I guess it is. <laughs> Maybe that was in Matrix Revolutions. And the Bruce Lee movie. That's my number two. It's because their bodies are different. I think it ends with uh, John Travolta getting shot. The so they, they is there a. They're, they're standing off. They're going to shoot each other. What does one of them start opening fire? Does a yeah? And then a does Chris Penn come in. What what happens? Joan Allen shows up. <laughs> is that true? Yeah, because they're Joan Allen is in face off. She, yeah, she, she's the she's John Travolta's wife. Yeah. Ooh. Okay. Yeah, and there's this whole okay. there's this great there's this great romantic scene that at that point I remember thinking, how in the world are you going to light that many candles? Honestly, how can anybody light that many candles? And then there's the teenage daughter, too. Is she famous? Who plays her? No. Right. She's just a Cooper clone. All right. I just, the, the only point that's interesting about it is the fact that their bodies are supposed to be different. Right. So the face off is like, oh, but it, this is that one time and it's different. It's kind of like. This is change. a Mexican standoff. This is not a face off. Well, yeah, they yeah. wait. All right. <laughs> As long as they wait before shooting, Dingus, it qualifies. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. Luckily, there are no cops on patrol. Kelly, one, you got away with it. That's my number two. Well, the only reason, so I don't, I don't remember specifics, but if it's in a John Woo movie, I'm pretty sure, Dingus, that Kelly Wand is onto something, and there's some kind of Mexican standoff. I don't think John Woo has ever done a movie where there aren't two people holding guns in each other's faces. Oh, that's a good point, actually. Yeah, his movies are rife with them. That's a good point. I didn't even think about John Woo. That is John Woo, right? Dumb of me. No, no, you're right. right. Yeah, yeah. You're right. Yeah. The director of Hard Target. Uh, Dingus, what is your second favorite Mexican standoff in a film or motion picture? All right. If there were a cop on duty or some federal agency, I would Uh probably get in trouble for this, but I'm going to go for it anyway because I think it's a great Dingus, let me just say one of the reasons that the cops aren't on duty is because of my number one. I might get myself in trouble. I'm just saying. Uh, Me too. Have at it. All right. Good. Well. (laughs) Kelly Wand. Uh, sorry, that's, can't that's stop two. saying it. Kelly Wand, that's two. Yeah, okay. <laughs> well, it does fit. <laughs> she must equip. Wow, okay, so anyway, um, 
My second favorite Mexican standoff is from the movie Failsafe, uh, a 1964 movie directed by Sidney Lumet. And it would be the standoff between the American president and the Russian premier. Of course, this would be the serious version of Dr. Strangelove. And I, the more I've watched Failsafe, the more I love it. And I think that it really does fit, even though it's sort of not the conventional we're all holding guns on each other, each other thing. But Tom brought up earlier, and I was nervous he was going to talk about uh, Strangelove when he said this, the mutually assured destruction thing. Um, and so the uh, the way that the the definition of this is of characters that can't withdraw without damage to either one of them the the thing that the things that happen in failsafe you know the the bombers are flying over there's a com- computer glitch they cross their failsafe point they disregard the calls to come back because that's they've been trained to do the russian premier talking to henry fonda as the president with again as i've told you as many times before larry hagman excellently excellently working as this interpreter in their little bunker together it's just a great little one room scene um uh there's the russian premier saying we're going to have to launch our missiles we have no choice and your bombers are going to bomb us they have no choice they won't pull back and so um, what Henry Fonda has to finally do is choose an external result. Uh, and I don't really want to give away the end, but it's an ex- it's absolutely extreme, absolutely almost ridiculous. Uh, but it's based on this book by Eugene Burdick and, and Harvey Wheeler, which I really, I really like the book too. But I'm crazy about this book, uh, this movie, Failsafe. Uh, so I'm hoping you'll allow it, even though there's no cops online, but I'm basically using the Cold War uh, standoff between Russia and the U.S. as a Mexican standoff. I, I see no reason why missiles are not as effective a tool for Mexican standoff as guns. Okay. Yeah. Good. Fair enough. And that's why my number one is Dr. Strangelove, Dingus. Oh, are you serious? Yeah, uh, of course. Uh, oh. Did, Kelly Wand, what, you that. have something to say, Kelly Wand? Uh, I ho- is this an, isn't uh, it just I, a one-sided... Okay, never mind. Wait a minute. I guess you, the, wait, you were you were as alive as I was during the Cold War. No, it's not one sided. What do you mean one sided? That's a terrible. What kind of? It's not mutually assured destruction if you're just pointing a gun at the empty air. No, yeah, but is it's our missile, so there's no missile on their side. You think no, the Russians didn't have missiles? Wait, well, we don't see it in the movie. We don't see it in the movie. You have to we see don't. the missiles. That's another it's rule. A, Mexican stand-up. You have to see both sides' weapons, or it doesn't count. Well, so I think oh, I we're failsafe. We're failsafe. Uh, doesn't fail. like failsafe sees through like it implies the world's ending right but it doesn't see right. through to it yeah so dr strangelove and this is why i, I would pick ah, it very good it, tom it, oh okay. it, it does not cheat dr strangelove has no cheat there is no you can't back off you can't go for like dr strangelove is a classic example of a mexican standoff that doesn't cheat and everybody dies because dr strangelove ends with the, the the bombs going off around the world uh right. i know in failsafe like i think one goes off and then it, the implication is, yep, everything's falling apart. Everybody's going to die. But Doctor Strangelove makes it very clear that that's exactly what's going to happen. Uh, and I think it's painting the Cold War as a Mexican standoff, which it very clearly was, okay. in the sense that the only reason it ended. You'll have some people saying, "Yeah, Reagan won the Cold War," and 
he was president when it ended. I wouldn't say he won it. But the reason the Cold War ended is we were both sitting there basically pointing guns at each other's faces like in a John Woo movie, and it's just the Russians got tired first. Uh, it's whoever ran yeah. out of military spending first uh, just stopped. And the now other guy's tired. Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I guess they were playing the long con. You might have a good point, Kelly. Yeah. <laughs> we give you a new president eventually. You'll see. But also, I think it's volumes about Dingus and I that I would opt for Dr. Strangelove. He would right. opt, for, opt for fail. He would apologize for saying nuclear weapons. Well, I was going to as well. I was also aware that it's kind of str- – but it clearly it's not cinematic like you're saying, Kelly Wan, in the sense that you see two people sh- pointing guns at each other. But it's a Mexican standoff yeah. clearly in the sense that this is the setup for the movie, for what's but happening. But you can say that about any Cold War plot line. Like you can say it about Tinker uh, well, Taylor. Sure, sure. Absolutely. Uh Absolutely. But where I would disagree is that with the distinction and why Dingus and I pick these is that they follow through to the logical end. Like Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy might take place during a Mexican standoff, but it's not about the resolution of that standoff. It's about something that happened during that standoff. Um, so, yeah, you could do that. You could say the tension of that is because of the Cold War, this Mexican standoff in the Cold War. But specifically, by the way, in Tinker Taylor Soldier Spy is an example of this. The, the entirety of the Cold War wasn't just the potential for uh, nuclear devastation. Like, that's what Failsafe and Dr. Strangelove is about, is that particular weaponry aimed at each other. A lot of the war in the Cold War was proxy wars, uh, you know, police state actions, Vietnam invasion, that sort of thing. Um, but the Mexican standoff Dingus and I are talking about, Tinker Taylor's Soldier Spy wasn't specifically about this, is the nuclear... Uh, the implications of mutually assured destruction with uh, nuclear weapons. In war games, the Mexican standoff's the solution. And it doesn't end the world, if I'm not mistaken. No. All right. Yeah. But it goes, <laughs> oh, tic-tac-toe's stupid. All right, forget every... Now, that means every game's stupid. Right, yeah. Well, computers, you know. Yeah. Kelly, I do, do like, I do like the sense in, in Failsafe and in, in indeed in Dr. Strangelove, but in just in a different way, is that if you since you are going to do this with your weapon, then we are going to do this with our weapon. Right. And that's why I felt ultimately comfortable. I I didn't know if you would know I was going to go in this direction, Tom. Um, But uh, that's ultimately why I felt like it was useful for this particular category, because it does have the sense of we are pointing weapons at each other. And for the cold war, at least that tension went on for years. Which is and different it, than the normal thing. Well, they, it's, 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 it's a cold. It's a, it's a Mexican standoff on a global scale and on a very different timeline. Yeah. So. Right. And, and that's why it's my number one pick. Is I love that uh, that Kubrick played with that in Doctor Strangelove, yeah. uh, and your fella as well who wrote the failsafe book. Uh, I'm your calling fella. him your, your fella. I don't know because I don't remember Tom the author's Clancy. name. <laughs> yeah, Tom Clancy, who wrote that failsafe book, like all the other political thrillers of his that you read, Dingus. Who here on this podcast do you think has read the most Tom Clancy books? I have an idea. Well, Dingus, obviously. Yeah. Dingus, would you concur? Because he's read any. <laughs> I've read any. I've never read <laughs> I remember. I looked at one once. I'm like, Meh, I once many... went on uh, went on a road trip uh, with my girlfriend, and we were just going to read each other books while we were taking turns driving. And I thought, you know, I'm going to have her read me this uh, Red Storm Rising book. Give it a whirl. And that that did not last long. Like we both just thought, <laughs> yeah. That's, that's, I just studied a couple paragraphs at random. <laughs> like, no. 
This guy sucks. Brits, Britstorm Rising is when he starts to actually kind of parody himself because it's there, there's so many disparate things going on, and it, I can't imagine trying to read that to somebody. It it would just uh, it would drive you nuts. Yeah, I did a few ones, and then afterwards, like, what the fuck was I doing? <laughs> well, who among us do you think has played the most Tom Clancy games, Kelly? Mon? I think we know the answer to that. I and win. Star Wars I win. Yeah. yeah. Suck That's it, the sense of victory. Yeah. I rule. All right, Kelly Wand. Off, no, what you've is... got to give us your number two. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, oh, sweet. Uh, okay, my number two favorite uh, Mexican standoff. And like I said, I could just pick Quentin Tarantino movies. But this is the one that I love because uh, – I, I, so I think Jackie Brown is probably his best movie. But in a way, because he didn't write it, it's not entirely his movie. I might – like, is it weird if I say that Inglorious Bastards? It's it's my favorite, but would I would it be weird to say it's his best? Like, do you have to go back to Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction? No, it's the best. Okay, Dingus, are you okay uh, with that? I'm not a big fan of. It. I'm not. I'm not as big a fan of Inglorious Bastards as everybody. Really? Else. I, I like the first the first act. Right. Uh, just you don't fine. like that ending? That ending rules. I think it's the ending is fine, but I think this is again in. This is why I, this is why I kind of prefer the way Ben Ben Wheatley and Amy Jump are making movies. I think his movies are just he doesn't have a. This is kind of a sad thing to say. He doesn't have an editor anymore who really pulls him back. I like. He goes I mean, that makes this, this Mexican standoff though really good, as it goes on a really long time. Well, that's there's it's a lot of good dialogue. There's so much, and and the thing is, you realize the whole time that it's been a kind of a Mexican standoff when Michael Fassbender says. Dude, I had my gun on you since you sat down. <laughs> like, yeah. there's that, and there's so much. Like, Inglorious Bastards, I think, is what Quentin Tarantino reaches for a lot, and it's it's so sad to see how short it falls in, in Hateful Eight, where he wants exciting things to happen while two people are talking to each other. And there's great raw examples of that in Pulp Fiction, and certainly in Reservoir Dogs. But I just think that scene with Christoph Waltz and the poor guy hiding the Jewish family that opens. Uh, Inglorious Bastards, and certainly that tavern bit with Michael Fassbender and the Nazi officer, and then later Brad Pitt coming down with the poor survivor. On now. Yeah, yeah. The, well, that I mean, that's that's a linguistic Mexican standoff uh, when Brad Pitt can't speak Italian. But uh, just that that the the wind up and how much time Quentin Tarantino takes in these scenes, building tension with the dialogue. Uh, and what I sets really it up? Like. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, oh, and so – and, and it also – it it and this is shocking, but it follows through. I mean you think Michael Fassbender is going to be one of the main characters. The fact that he dies in this uh, is is a little bit disarming because you're like, I like that guy. I wanted him to be the main guy. He's, he's awesome. He's cool. He's British. He's got it together. He knows what he's doing. He's competent, yeah. uh, and he's a victim of this Mexican standoff, and the great thing – uh, he knows exactly what's going to happen the moment that he knows the other guy's on to him. And he's got that great little bit where he says, I hate to see you know, there's a special place in hell place for someone who wastes good scotch. So he takes the scotch hmm. and he basically says, well, since I'm about to die, I hope you don't mind. Oh, it, it, yeah. Since I'm about to die, I hope you don't mind if we speak the king's – he doesn't say king's speech. But he says something like, oh, king, can we speak the king's tongue now or whatever. But he basically says, can we shift into English? Uh, which there's a same there's a similar dynamic in the the scene with Christoph Waltz talking to the guy hiding 
the the Jewish family, where the language shifts at a certain uh-huh. point in the dynamic. Uh, so when Michael Fassbender says, well, I guess I'm going to die, he's right. He knows he's right. He's not just saying that because he's a super cool, badass guy who doesn't flinch in the face of death. He says it because he knows how a Mexican standoff is going to end. He knows that they've got guns pointed at each other, that Till Schweiger is going to just explode, that the table of, of German soldiers behind him is that they're all armed. He knows it's gonna that he's gonna die, and he does die. You know, it's it's exactly yeah. what happened. And so when Brad Pitt comes down and there's the one lone surviving guy, uh, they have and I don't I didn't remember this. They have this great exchange where Brad Pitt says, "Well, I guess it's a Mexican standoff." Yeah. Oh. And and the guy down there says, "No, it, you need because Brad Pitt is yelling down from upstairs, mm. and the guy who's holding a, a one of those MP40s, a little German submachine gun." When Brad Pitt says, I guess we got a Mexican standoff, the guy says to him, no, you need guns on me for it to be a Mexican standoff. He disputes the definition. He's the three-by-three police. (laughs) Right, exactly. He tries to play three-by-three cop. He's the three-by-three Nazi. Very good, Kelly Wand. Very, very good. He refuses the line. Yep, exactly. So I just love how Quentin Tarantino uh, sees this through to its logical end (laughs) and then calls calls himself out for just this – narrative device uh, and, and plays it further with uh, I think the guy's name is Arno or something like that. Um, you can some people just think that scene's too long and for me that's why oh, it's good. It's so, almost not long enough. Like it's like every moment it's two groups of people. Yeah. And, yeah. Every moment in that scene and the same with Christoph Waltz's conversation that opens the movie. Like every moment of that conversation. That's part of what I love about the wind up in uh, in Free Fire. Is it? It might feel mundane to the people doing it, but everybody's on edge. You know something's going to happen. It's like a storm building, and it's the most dramatic part in a way. Uh, yeah. Is watching the clouds roll in. Yeah. All right. And now King all Kong, of the so. all of Free Fire is that scene. Yeah. Well, they, well, yeah, I exactly. like that too. <laughs> yeah. The yeah, longer it, the standoff, the better. It takes Ben Wheatley to make the full movie out of it. Quentin Tarantino just stretches it into long scenes. Yeah. That is Which the longest shootout been in cinema history, though, is Free Fire, isn't it? There's never been a shootout longer than Free Fires. I think you're right. We can call Guinness now. Yep, absolutely. Early 90s, though. What's uh, the question? What? I'm pretty There's serious no question other than you giving your number one choice. Unless Tom has more to say about Inglorious. Yep. Over to you, Kelly Wand. What is your favorite Mexican standoff in a motion picture? Okay, and Battle of the Five Armies. Oh, sweet. <laughs> I love where this is going. I don't remember the Mexican standoff. I can't believe I love this happened. Love There's four... He hasn't even seen it. He doesn't know the movie. <laughs> he hasn't? I no. watched it because you liked it. Then afterwards, it was like stupid tall. Yeah, you thought I was retarded. Yeah, I did. Oh. Uh, so there's an ar- there's a CG army of dwarves. That's and one. there's a CG army of humans. Two. From Lake Town. Led by Wait. the Ravens. There's this, there's an army of elves. Yep, led by a dude on a reindeer. Yeah, and there's orcs. So it's a four-way Mexican standoff. Wait, there's the fifth army. Well, they break it up. It's not a gonna, standoff. Are we going to once again? Are you going to try to tell me again the eagles are an army? No, I'm saying the standoff is four armies, and then a fifth army shows up. And breaks it up, but it also is broken up. Fifth Army does not show up. The Eagles aren't an army; they're an Air Force. A, B, they don't qualify as a whole army. C, they didn't win the battle; they just showed up and 
messed up the Nazgul Air things. Air Force. Right. And <laughs> they are. They're, an Air, they're a Navy. No, they don't have boots on the ground. You can't occupy territory They have talons in the air. Eagles. They have talons <laughs> in the air, but no boots on the ground. Yeah, but Eagles they don't have a terrible occupation force. They couldn't they – can't, they can't claim territory. An eagle can't claim territory. You can just fly over – They can claim branches. They can claim branches of government. That's what talons do. See, Kelly Wan, see? Does see it annoy to- birds so that their feet aren't shaped to uh, be on the ground? <laughs> have to wait for phone wires to be invented so they can hang out? <laughs> I mean, every like time we the do planet this planet I live on, yeah. Mm-hmm. Every time we do this podcast, I just, I just appreciate that that little gem that Chris Hemsworth has in Ghostbusters about how isn't an aquarium a submarine for fish? That that is Kelly Wand's life. That's the inside of his head. Yeah, that's observation. Is how Kelly Wand goes through moment to moment, day by day, and I'm just so envious. I could be a receptionist <laughs> if I had the right connections. <laughs> Um, all right, so Kelly. Wan, wait. So, is the Mexican standoff all the armies? Because that's not a Mexican. It's the four armies. Yeah, no, they're all staring at each other CGly. And no, then... they fight. They fight. They're constantly fighting. No, dwarves, no. dwarves come riding in on pigs and fight. There's a pig cavalry. But there's a long stare down until. There's a little bit of a stare down, but they get to the CG fighting pretty quick. Come and on, there's. Gan- yeah, Gandalf on. shows up. And then he says to Thorin, because Thorin's going to throw Bilbo off uh, some parapets. Right. And and Gandalf's all, hey, why don't you pick on someone your own size? But he is. They're the same size. I don't get it. I know. That's why Gandalf's stupid. And then some uh, wereworms show up. Ooh, right. They're they're sandworms. They're like, they tunnel through. They bring the the orcs come in through underground tunnels that are dug by sandworms. Yeah. But are you serious with me right now? Wereworms? Yeah, there's wereworms, which means uh, well, they used to be people. That's not true. What? They used to be people? Do we know that in the movie? Yeah. Awesome if that's well, true. Well, they're called wereworms, so I'm assuming. We don't see the actual... Um, are you screwing up the word wyvern? No. Oh, okay. How can you do screw they, that up? Do they produce spice? The spice is the, uh, the, spice is the worm, the worm is the spice. I'm the boss! Wait. <laughs> Kelly has awakened. <laughs> so, All right, yeah, so five armies. Finally, that 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 finds a, its rightful spot at the number one place in someone's three by three list. I like that, Kelly. Tolkien's are Tarantino. Dingus, it's now down to you. What's the best? Wait, is it? I've lost track completely. Yeah, I'm well, number. What's, yeah. the, what's the best Mexican? I did it. Movie. <laughs> <laughs> I got out of that. Boy, am I, I scared straight. Kelly, <laughs> Kelly I, I don't think Tom ever said what the Fifth Army was. He just let you go with the It's evil. goblins. It's goblins. It's, it's dwarfs. goblins, CG, not birds. It's dwarfs, humans. <laughs> it uh, would have been called Battle of Four Armies and One Air Force, but it's exactly, not. Exactly. <laughs> Protection Elf. from my infection. It's so, the Navy, so the Navy doesn't count as a, an army? No, the Black Corsairs are in the uh, Return of the King. Not- I'm just asking Tom if, if he understands that Amy, uh, Amy, that, uh, yeah, Amy Jump, that, Amy are, Jump that the army also consists of the Navy yeah. and the Air Force. Those are what? armies. Okay, the army Wait. does not consist of the Navy. How, okay, Dingus, let me set you straight on some Milsim. The Marines are land. They're called Marines, which is water. It doesn't make any sense there. The military, the U.S. military has three branches. 
The U.S. Oh. The actually legislation the separate. Judicial. The Marines might be separate. Uh, Army, Air Force, uh, Navy. However, let me explain this to you, Dingus. I better uh, smoke weed. There is, a, <laughs> there is, and these guys were instrumental in the bombing of, of uh, Hitler's Europe in World War II. For instance, the 8th U.S. Army Air Force. The Army had its own Air Force. So mm-hmm. within each force, there are like micro forces. So and there's the, the dark army, side of it. The so. army has like riverine naval forces, for instance. Jesus, uh, so confusing. The cavalry has satellites. So the navy is not part of the army, Dingus. And I'm sure there are people in the army who would kick your butt if you tried to tell them that. They would be no like, one no, call a planet as a huge army, by the way. People at Seaman Beaumont would kick your ass if you tried to tell them that, Dingus. Mm-hmm. With his torpedoes. Is air torpedoes? <laughs> torpedoes. All right, where All right. are we? Just quick, your yes. third favorite. All right, no, my number one, um, I have to choose uh, Tarantino because this is my absolute favorite. And, and it's I'm going to why it's a cheat, but go on. I love this pick. I mean, I assume oh. you're picking. The Eagles? Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's the Hateful Eight Eagles. It can hold a gun, which the Eagle can all right, here's the quote from it. Let's just put our guns down and let's settle this with a fucking conversation. Oh, are you doing Reservoir Dogs? Yes, of course. Oh, I thought you were going to do Pulp Fiction. Uh, I think oh, I didn't know he was doing the line. I thought he was just pissed off. I take back what I said. I mean, that's a great one, but I don't have any observations about Reservoir Dogs. Oh, man, I love this. I love this so much. And this no, is, great. I think this is the ultimate Mexican standoff because of, you know, partly because of what you said earlier about <laughs> everybody dying. Um, but. I I also love the fact that it's uh, it's three different people pointing their guns in different directions. You know, two on one guy, one on no, one on one guy, one on the other guy, and one on the third guy. All it's this triangle, and I really like the triangle aspect of it. And that the this weird outside outside force is Mr. Orange, who has garnered the trust of Mr. White who is, of course, Harvey Keitel, who has found a way to ingratiate himself into him and become his friend. And uh, to the point where Harvey Keitel is like, Joe, I know this kid. He wouldn't do this. He's not the, He's not what you think. He's, he's somebody we can trust. This didn't happen. And, of course, Mr. White is saying that Mr. Blonde has uh, betrayed them all, and that's why he killed Mr. Blonde. Um, and then there's that whole great thing where it's Joe and um, and Chris Penn. I can't remember Chris Penn's name off the top of my head. Uh, who are both there together, and Chris Penn saying, "Stop pointing that gun at my dad." And of course, it ends in the way that Tom was talking about earlier, with all of them killing each other, uh, except that Harvey Cattell is going to be killed in a moment. But you pretty much know that he's going to be dead uh but it's it's that perfect moment of none of us can withdraw none of us can go forward without something going horribly wrong and if you shoot this person then i'm going to shoot you and if wait if you shoot him then i'm going to shoot you as well and it just happens i just love the succession and i love the way that tarantino sets up those shots this is when i thought he was more lean and mean and understood how to compose a scene in a warehouse uh, much like the movie that we saw today, All right. um, that most of the action takes place there, except for like different things that show us something from outside, uh, which is, again, another thing that I respect about the movie we saw today. But 
uh, I do love the way that most of this takes place in the warehouse and that whole way that he stages that scene. And then from the reverse angle, staging the way the bodies look. So Reservoir Dogs would definitely be my Tarantino pick. Okay, so then how do you feel about the – or do you, do you remember much or do you have much to say about the, the, the Mexican standoff at the end of Pulp Fiction? Well, I was – I was it's thinking about it because the book you're talking about Honey Bunny. Yeah, yeah, the book ends. It opens with that, and then it ends with that at the end of Pulp Fiction, the resolution right, of that. Right, right, right. Um, Even though, I, weirdly enough, by the way, it's not chronologically. Like, Pulp Fiction does this weird time thing, so it's, it's kind of weird to see John Travolta get killed in Pulp Fiction, and then we back up to when he's still alive and we're seeing him. Like, that's – right. Yeah, but so it's a weird. It's a bookend that doesn't actually end the books. You know, if whatever. no one dies, it's not a Mexican standoff. Though. Well, that's okay. Kelly, Wan, Dingus, is he right? What do you think? Go ahead. Oh no, I know. I disagree with that because uh, I think the definition that Tom gave us is that it, unless it's enacted upon by an external event, um, and I think that the, finding we, a way to surrender, one. like you right. can, like you can say, I'll. I'll get myself shot in the shoulder or I'll have some things sacrificed. Um, those things can, and the Mexican staff stand up as well. And I think that, uh, negotiation can too. Uh, I just don't find it as gratifying because, uh, of how calm Jules is in diffusing the situation, which I like in watching the movie, but I prefer the reservoir dogs one. It it really is, uh, and there's a lot of stuff like this in Pulp Fiction. It's this sense of Tarantino sort of deconstructing stuff because it's a Mexican standoff, and even the appearance of whatever's in the briefcase do- doesn't end it. Like it, that's your Deus Ex Machina, and that doesn't even end it. You know that he shows mm-hmm. it to to Tim Roth. Tim Roth is briefly dazzled, and that's what then turns it into a Mexican standoff. Uh, so there's even this divine element there that not even the Deus Ex Machina is going to end it. So yeah. what ends it is it it this. You know, it is like you said, thing. It's a negotiation. Samuel Jackson talks everyone down from it, and it's his redemption, which I'm sure Kelly hates. Like it's him. The, the movie, the arc of his character is him redeeming himself, and this is how he redeems himself by diffusing an inherently undiffusible situation uh, that even the divine element couldn't take care of. Uh, and so it's. I love the dynamic of it, and you're right. Like it, it's a great bit of Sam Jackson. Um, but it's this weird deconstruction, literally and narratively, of, of a uh, of a Mexican standoff. That's a great way to put it because I'd forgotten that element that the Deus Ex couldn't the Deus Ex Machina couldn't couldn't defuse it. I like the way that you put that. I love that shot, like like just Tim Roth's face and him yeah, saying, "Is that what yeah. I think it is?" And you're like, "Wait, what? Oh, do we get to see it?" And even I forgot this. Amanda Plummer in the background is going, "What? What is it? What? What is it? What did you see?" Like she, <laughs> she's us. She's the audience. <laughs> And we've spent the whole movie doing that. I really like that you said that. That's really great because I forgot. And as soon as you said it, I can see Tim Roth's face. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I almost want to – yeah, oh, God. Okay, never mind. Three by three. Next three by three. <laughs> best, best Tim Roth movies. Best Tim Roth moments. All right. All right. Paul well, Weimer. We're going to have to talk about Tupac. Oh, very good, Dingus. Mm-hmm. See, I even forget that's Tim Roth because that's so un-Tim Roth. Him in gridlocked, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, all right, Paul Weimer. I hope to face off again with my three favorite Mexican standoffs. <laughs> he didn't put the he didn't put the slash in there though. Did you put standoff? Oh, it looks like I don't know who he's addressing this at. He says none of them take place on the planet in Melancholia. I don't know why he wrote that. <laughs> in Pirates of the Caribbean, we get an interesting one when Captain Barbarossa and Will Turner engage in one. Barbarossa has a sword at Elizabeth's throat. Uh, Paul Weimer's putting the names of the actors in parentheses here. I don't know if people need that. With Pirates of the Caribbean, we all remember 
Barbarossa, Will Turner, and Elizabeth. Iconic characters. Kara Knightley's character was named Elizabeth? Very good, Kelly Wand. Who's Will Turner? He's Orlando Bloom. Whoa, you do know this. All right, well, for, for a trifecta, who's Captain Barbarossa? Jeffrey Rush. Wow, Kelly Wan, you and Paul Weimer have a lot in common. Oh, that's amazing. Who played who played boring. Gary in the movie we saw today? Johnny Depp. <laughs> Wait. Uh, so they're at a three by three. Let's see. Barbarossa has a sword in Elizabeth's throat. Will has a gun to his own head. Oh, right. Since if he died, the undead pirates would never be able to free themselves from the curse. <laughs> that's funny. Uh, they need his blood. Funny. That's like, uh, what's the bit in Blazing Saddles? Nobody move or the Negro gets it. Wait, isn't it? Doesn't he put a gun in his own head? No? Yeah. You guys don't remember Blazing Saddle? Never mind. I'm the one who hates Melbourne. He is so talented, and they are so dumb. <laughs> in Inglorious Bastards, have a Mexican standoff in the aftermath of the bar fight. Bar fight. <laughs> Some bar, bar That's fight. That's a tavern brawl. Yeah. Bar fight. Instead uh, of what the topic's called. <laughs> no, but in, in Inglorious Bastards, <laughs> the Mexican standoff's in the aftermath of the bar fight. He's called a bar fight is something that would happen like in Roadhouse. Maybe Patrick. he means the the King Kong game, like that's a fight. Ah, uh, right, exactly. It's a fight of wills. Sure. Yeah. Uh, as Lieutenant Rain and surviving German soldier talk out their standoff, there's even a debate among the principals as to whether it's really a Mexican standoff. They decide it is. It is. Brad Pitt does convince the guy. The guy's like, it's not a standoff if you don't have guns on me. Brad Pitt is basically like, well, you know what? You have a point, but we could drop grenades down on you. So right. Mexican. <laughs> Uh, okay, I'm glad this came up as I just watched this movie. The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly has the all-time yeah. best and favorite possible Mexican standoff, and one, if I'm not scooped, that I will be highly disappointed that I have not been scooped by. Paul Weimer writes. I elaborated on that a bit. I had it for a while, but Tolkien was just too obvious. All right, I'm, gonna, I'm about to shoot this, I'm about to shoot this down in a minute, but hold on. Paul Weimer says, Angel Eyes, Blondie, and Tuco face off against each other with their guns. The resolution of it is a heavy spoiler... Please. The movie's like, what, 50 years old? Oh, my God, it is 50 years old. Uh, the resolution's a heavy spoiler, but suffice to say, it's brilliant thinking on the winner's part. Okay. Good, the bad, and the ugly. Uh, which So I, I watched it today, and I was like, oh, God, this thing is three hours. There's no way I'm going to make it through this. <laughs> it's, it's a good movie. I forgot. Like, I, I really yeah, like oh, I love I love that movie, and I really wanted to watch it again because I figured it would work for this, but I, I couldn't get around to it. And I love how the three of them are all doing such different things, like Clint yeah. Eastwood is doing himself. Uh, I love – I don't know. <laughs> I think it's just because I was so into Escape from New York as a kid. I definitely have this predilection to like Lee Van Cleef, but I've seen mm. him in nothing else literally other than Escape from New York and, and uh, Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. So he's doing his cool Lee Van Cleef evil bad guy thing, and whatever Eli Wallach is doing, that guy's just – He's ugly. Well, he's like a clown in it at times. He's like the comic relief. Uh, mm. Some of it's like super broad, Tuco. almost like slapstick. Yeah, Tuco's just this great, weird character. Um, so here's the deal. And I also love, too, and I'd forgotten about this, how it how they, they arrive basically into the Civil War. Like the Civil War is referenced a lot, and the movie is increasingly getting more and more into the Civil War, and eventually they come into a full-blown Civil War battle. Uh, but okay, so that last standoff is famous. It's probably the most famous Mexican standoff, and it's probably why a lot of people think, oh yeah, a Mexican standoff needs three people. Because it's, it's classic. And it's uh, Is it? Yeah, I guess so. Right, right. In the well, movie. no, it's not in Mexico. Yeah, like three amigos. That's, that's the greatest Mexican I don't in think the they story either. they're in Mexico. No, none of the Civil War was fought in Mexico, Kelly Wand. Yeah. They had a Civil War. 
Yeah, but that's that's the Mexican. <laughs> this is the American Civil War. They they're not in Mexico. Kelly, want to go to your room? Uh, uh, so, <laughs> at, at any rate, they they've all got guns on each other, right? And do you do you guys remember like how it resolves? Like who, I don't. It's been a long time. Yeah. I think I think Van Cleef fires first. Uh, right? He definitely fires first, right? And uh, Clint Eastwood shoots him so well he, right. uh, he, play, he draws first he gets shot first uh clint eastwood shoots him and do you know why clint eastwood shoots him because he uh, knows the night before he had unloaded tuco's gun he knows that uh, tuco yeah, is yeah. over there with an empty gun so this is not a mexican standoff it is a it's a trick <laughs> it's a trick to the audience and it's also i think Remember with uh, Judge Dredd when Carl Urban throws Lena Headey off. He, he first of all he makes her take her drug so that she's tripping out and she will yeah. and it draws time out so her fall to her death she's got more time to think about what she's doing. You guys are like, yeah, she deserved it. That was great. I thought he was being a dick. There was no. really no point to do that. She has a bomb that's going to go off unless she, he, she's on that drug. <laughs> yeah, it's not. What's he talking? About? He doesn't have to drug her. No, he, you yeah, no, no. She has a bomb, and he has to slow time down, or it's going to go off. So he has to give her the drug. Why does yeah. the, how does a bomb not go off if time is slowed down? A bomb goes. It off has something it to do with her heartbeat or something. Yeah, it has. It's like speed. You guys don't know. Yeah. it's like the movie what? Speed. Look, I we had this argument fact. on the Dread podcast. <laughs> and, right, and, and I was thinking, were like, dude, I was. Yeah. It, I stand by the fact that Judge Dredd is a dick. No one disagrees with me. We've had no email submitted to the podcast saying Tom, you're wrong. So therefore, but it's Cersei. <laughs> At any rate, just <laughs> like the Judge last Dredd, guy you said was a dick on the podcast, the last protagonist. I don't know, but I'm about to call Clint Eastwood a dick, so it's going to be him. Right, well, here we go. Who was the last guy? I don't remember. Oh, oh, I, was it was it John Wick too? Because he didn't honor his yeah. Uh, John Wick. John Wick's a dick because oh, yeah. he didn't honor. Yeah, yeah he's trying John to weasel dick. out of a deal that he made. Yeah, John Dick. Uh, so Clint Eastwood, if he knows that Tuco's gun is empty, why doesn't he just shoot Lee Van Cleef? At some point earlier, without without going this through this whole production of oh we're gonna have a standoff, it didn't well, have to it, happen. Is it a cheat? I mean, I don't yeah, remember it's it. Well, it's a cheat to the audience and and Clint Eastwood's part because he he knows Tuco's he unloaded one of the participants' guns. Like he knows that the guy one of the guys because that's the whole point is they're standing there each one not knowing which of the other to shoot. Clint Eastwood knows that one of the people is harmless. He was by the way the guy who suggested this whole deal. He knows it's rigged. He could have just shot Lee Van Cleef and gotten it over with without tricking anybody, including the audience. This thing didn't need to happen. It's dumb. Well, who, but he's the good. Who, who wakes up in the morning without checking to see if his gun is loaded? Tuco. Tuco. That's in character. Because <laughs> he's ugly? <laughs> and stupid. He's a dumbass. I mean, everybody, so anybody, anybody who uses up. a weapon, every time you pick it up, you check to see if it's loaded. Because so many, this is these are westerns in the 1960s. They're, they're, they have their own rules. It's Hollywood Tuco, does. and it is Tuco, yeah. And and it's also this is another thing that as I was watching the movie, I was like, oh god, I have just no tolerance for this. Everybody in this movie who is one of the top built characters is a crack shot. They can yeah. hit a dime thrown in the air. Like all these, everybody's shooting somebody's hat off. Like just all these silly scenes. <laughs> somebody a hat shot off of, like, and from the hip too. Like Clint Eastwood fast draws and and he shoots the hats off of about five or six extras. Uh, it's ridiculous. Like you could ever do that. The bullet. Which, right. And that's one of the things that's great about uh, um, Free Fire is like it's mainly just the suit. It got the it got the shoulder pad. Don't worry about it. 
Right, exactly. People missing. But in the, in these movies, if you're top build, you will do the most amazing ballistic feats with your gun without even sighting down the barrel. So I'm watching it thinking, well, this is kind of dumb. I mean, I, these guys, because it's always the bad guys who are missing. But I kind of realized what's being set up is that they're all equally good. Like every yeah. single one of these characters, Lee Van Cleef, Tuco, who even though he's a clown, he's a great shot. And of course, the man with no name, Clint Eastwood's character, who's called Blondie in this. Oh, good. All, you mean competent. Okay. Well, they're, they're, all, they're all equally competent, right? Like every single one of them is magically good at shooting so that when they have a standoff, all of them would die in an actual Mexican standoff. If Clint Eastwood hadn't cheated, then they would all be dead because they are all – that good of a shot in the sense of the they never miss anything ever in the whole movie. Uh, like mm. that's kind of the point of I don't know if you meant it, but that's kind of what's set up when you watch them hit every single time and they do all these ridiculous shots that only heroes in westerns in the fifties and sixties could make. Or Sergio Leone ones. Or so well even come on, I'm sure John Ford has like John Wayne shooting dimes in the air or whatever. Uh, but that's Wandy's just a, thing. a better it, shooter than the police. No. Exactly, Kelly. You know what? I, it was kind of cool watching a movie today and just hearing people yelling "Blondie, Blondie, Blondie" all over, over and over again. Very true. Yeah, Kelly, I can't believe you just. What? So I might believe it. Have I convinced you guys that the good, the bad, and the ugly is a cheat? Um, um, no. Well, I don't remember it being a cheat because I don't. I mean, is there like some sort of flashback that backfills that, or do you see no, him? No, he do explains it because it? uh, it's, it's ridiculous. Eli Wallach. Eli Wallach is like, uh, uh, he he basically sees his gun is empty and he's like, you did this because he knows he would have loaded it. He's like, oh. you did this, and Clint Eastwood, he's like, you did this. When did you do this? And Clint Eastwood says, I did it last night when you were sleeping. Like we don't have a flashback. We have Clint Eastwood explain to Eli. Oh, okay. Wallach, yeah, this is how I cheated when he was oh. tucking them in. Well, do you like the other elements in this? Because one of the things I like about the movie, even though it's, uh, it's got some flaws i do like how languid it is and i love the music in it i like the way i like the style of it and i like what sergio leone is trying to do sergio leone is trying to do with westerns in his way so i mean i like the style of the movie more than i care about that uh, i love the style of it and the only thing that i kind of was thought doesn't really hold up uh, all those crash zooms which is, you know, where they're just a super fast zoom that's usually with oh. like a musical note. Like those things are kind of – they've been made fun of so much. I kind of feel they don't really work anymore. But for the most part, everything else is fine. It looks great. Uh, it's kind of weird. All the, the people that – their voices are dubbed because they were probably local actors who couldn't speak English without an accent. Right. So some of that is kind of weird to see. But no, I, I like the movie a lot. It's and funny so, to hear you say the crash zooms because that's something I always criticize about Shining because I can't stand that. The weird zooms that he does in there. He does weird zooms. I mean, that's some stuff that he does in there that I'm like, really? You're going to do a zoom here? It's really weird. I think I do. Like, is it on the like the weird animal sex room? Like, is there a crash zoom there? I don't think so. But it mainly deals with uh, uh, with Shelley Duvall. Okay. Is it Duvall or Long? Shelley Duvall. 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 (laughs) Shelley Long is the. I like I like the movie you just put in my head. Yeah. Yeah, Diane Chambers. All right, so Paul Weimer's number one, Good, the Bad, and the Ugly. And I do want to explain real quick, uh, sorry to take up so much time. So even though I feel it's a cheat, I think I've figured it out, and I I like that Sergio Leone leaves this up to me. He he does have Clint Eastwood explain, I unloaded your gun so that we know exactly what happened. 
I was thinking until Boy, you know, I, hate I, that. I, I just watched it today, but I was thinking, you know, Clint Eastwood's a dick. There's no reason to do that. He could have just shot Lee Van Cleef. I love it. He also, by the way, you remember he puts Tuco up on a cross, a yeah. rickety cross, hung by a noose with, with the gutter. He didn't have to do that. He could have just I know. said. That's why these. That's why the spaghetti westerns are different. Because there's, it's not like a Gary Cooper western. Like Clint Eastwood's kind of crapped in. He cheats in Mexican standoffs, and it's like well, he's good by the process of elimination. No, no, because I don't think that's a good thing. I think it's a dick thing. <laughs> what? No, I know, but I'm saying it's good characterization. Well, no, here's why. White hat. Here's what I think is going on. Here's my theory, and the movie – it's not in the movie. I don't think it's textual, but I think there might be some subtext here. I don't know if it's what's intended, but it's my interpretation, and I'm going to stick with it because I kind of like – I like liking Clint Eastwood's character. I like liking that he's a good guy, and if he's just fucking with them to, for no good reason, for cinematic value, that's it's stupid. It's Tuco. Well, here's what I think is going on. He's giving Tuco a last chance. He's basically decided – he knows that he's going to be the one who gets the gold, and he's going to kill Lee Van Cleef because Lee Van Cleef is obviously the evil character. He's a bounty hunter. He hasn't cut him a break. They had to escape from him. He's not sure about Tuco because Tuco has betrayed him over and over uh-huh. again. Uh, so he's giving Tuco a chance to see who Tuco shoots at. Right. When, when right. the firing starts, if Tuco will shoot at him or Lee Van Cleef first. Mm-hmm. And Tuco shoots first because I noticed it's clear that Tuco is opening fire. He's trying to open fire, and the gun's empty at Lee Van Cleef. So my theory is that if Tuco had been trying to shoot Clint Eastwood, he would have killed Tuco and not let not let him have his share of the gold. That this was Tuco's last chance, and that he lived up to it. Right. And he's that know. confident that he can beat Lee Van Cleef anyway. Right. So right. He has exactly. Total time to do this side bet. Exactly, he's using it to see which whether makes me not, love that character. Whether Actually, you're, you're so... making me like this movie less now because I, I know, the more I think about it, <laughs> th- there's no way somebody who deals with firearms doesn't oh my god wake up in the morning oh, and dude, look and see if their firearm is loaded. Movie? Utterly ridiculous. Tell that to Sam Peckinpah too. Uh, uh, the Wild Bunch totally. <laughs> Blood squirts don't Who doesn't check way? their gun uh, to see if there's actually bullets in it? And, or by the way. Lift it and go, gee, it doesn't feel the right weight. I mean, that's stupid. Somebody somebody in a movie who needs to make a narrative point. That's who. Mm-hmm. All right, fair enough. Man, and I I'm, thought I was being harsh on... Uh, no, I'm bad. I mean, just go set up as a dumbass. Like, it's not like... Yeah, but Tom also described him as being entirely competent as far as being no, able is. to shoot all three well, of them. Not only that, for, for like Kelly Warren, you're making fun of him, but he is super crafty. Because remember, right, this yeah. is the guy, too, that knows when he's taking a bath that someone might bust in on him. So he's got his gun in the bath with him. Like, that's Tuco. Well, let me rephrase that. He's always, it's set up that Clint Eastwood is always a step ahead of him. Okay, fair enough. Um, no, because Tuco does ambush Clint Eastwood, and that's a great part too. So Clint Eastwood has the scam going, where he lets he turns the 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 criminal in for the reward, and when the criminal is about to be hanged, he shoots the gun to free the criminal. They go to the next town, and they split the they split the reward. So after Tuco has betrayed him and they split ways, Clint Eastwood is taken up with a new partner. And we see he's doing the same scam. He's sitting there with the rifle, ready. The partner is about to be hanged. In the moment that the horse rolls out from under the partner, Clint Eastwood is going to shoot the rope so the partner is free. But Tuco has a gun on him, and, and it's like, okay, put your gun down. And he makes him sit there and watch the guy get hanged, like Clint Eastwood's new partner, 
who's sitting there thinking, wait, you're supposed to shoot me down from here, you jerk. Oh. You know, Blondie, where, when are you going to shoot? And so Tuco is holding the gun on him and makes him. He's one step ahead of Clean Eastwood there, and he makes him watch his partner die. Like, that's really rude. And that's that's behavior fitting him. Tuco being a dick, that makes yeah. sense. But I think but, I think Dingus is right, though. The guy, if you're smart enough to bring your gun into the bathtub because you know this is the scene where the one-armed bounty hunter is going to bust in on you thinking you're naked, you would know if your gun is empty. But for a narrative point that it's making, you know, we want right. to show that it's not realistic, but it's certainly literary. Uh, so and and maybe he put something that weighed in there. The same dramatic. And it's still wet from the bathtub. That's the thing, that too, is he gets out of the – he's got the wet gun, and even he gets out of the – bathtub and he walks over to the guy and he's shooting him with like bubble bath bubbles on the gun yeah. i don't think guns do that <laughs> but bubbles do <laughs> all right we have two more submissions i'm so glad we got to talk about good bad and the ugly though yeah me too i know which one i am Keith, oh that's right which one will we each be i guess i have to be Lee Van cleef dingus is yeah. clint eastwood kelly wander yeah. eli wallach haha you know what's I funny my gun, so, so i was idiot. thinking i was thinking clint eastwood last man standing because he cheated also Last man standing in real life. Mm. Ah, harsh. Mm. But also youngest, so not really level playing field. Is he younger than? Yeah, I guess so. He's than them? Well, Lee, uh, Lee Van Cleef wasn't like he's no like. He had to be older than Clint. You might be right. Keith Lee Shut made up, a Kelly. rule for himself. His rule was no westerns. Hmm. Number three. Mm. Oh my god. Well, this is the oldest movie ever submitted to a three-by-three. In huh. The Battle of the River Plate, 1956, a British... Did say that word? I always thought it was plate. I'm dumb. Uh, he right. spelled it plate, P-L-A-T-E. Oh, all right. So I don't know if it's a misspelling and I'm pronouncing it, I'm reading it wrong, or if Keith or misspelled it. It's actually yeah. called that. You know what this movie is? No, I just thought he meant P-L-A-T-T-E. Oh, oh. He spelled but... it plate, P-L-A-T-E. At any rate, in the super old grandpa movie from 1956, Keith writes, a British Navy attack group drives the German pocket battleship Admiral Graf Spee into Montevideo Harbor. It's Powell and Pressburger uses real ships, but like naval films of the times, many scenes just feature a row of men standing behind a metal wall, occasionally using binoculars. I include it as being a fan of blockades. Keith Leith, what are you on about? Always have been. Just think, without besting the Graf Spee, the Bismarck, and the U-boats, there'd be fascists governing either side of the Atlantic. Keith Lee, why are you giving us this history lesson with some old 1956 movie? You're lucky there's no cops on duty. They might That's be. That's a standoff. I guess the fact that the that the Graf Spee has to retreat into a harbor—that's not a standoff. That's a battleship getting its ass kicked. Number two. Let's see how he does here. There's no eagles. It's not a Mexican standoff. This is a slightly different movie. <laughs> eagles aren't an army. In Dead Man's Shoes. Oh no, no, Dead Man's Shoes. I was thinking Dead Man. Dead Men wear plaid. Dead Man's Shoes is great. In Dead Man's Shoes, uh, Patty Considine. Uh, Dead Men wear plaid. In amongst the aggression and brutality is a scene featuring Patty Considine's paratrooper and Gary Stretch's small-time drug dealer that is simply a muttered conversation yet more violent than any other. The stakes are high, but rather than being emphasized by spectacular wilderness or desert topo- topography, it takes place in front of ramshackle garages on a nondescript street. With four goons in attendance crammed into a rickety Citroen 2CV and Patty Considine's grown-out crew cut damp with English drizzle. 
Keith Lee, I like your write-up of that, but I still don't see how it's a Mexican standoff. Sounds like so, a good movie. You haven't seen Dead Man's Shoes? No, I don't see movies with give away what they're wearing. <laughs> uh, who's the guy that did? Uh, who's the guy that did this? Is Eng- he did this? Is England? Oh, what's that director's name? Isn't that him? You guys don't even know what I'm talking about. We'll move on. I do know, but I can't remember. Yeah. Because I think, I don't know. All I can think of is the field of England because you guys were talking about. But that. I do remember. Okay, number one. While I'm not looking something up on the <laughs> internet, I like that Tom's go-to movie for movies. Shade Meadows and title or Demon or Plaid. Right, but it Shade should Meadows. be Meadows. Shade Meadows. It was his first movie. He went on to do This Is England and uh, Stephen Graham and other stuff. Anyway, so uh, did we do one of his shows? His movies? I don't know. Did we? I don't think we've done a Shane Meadows. All right, movie. maybe not. What is he? I done? don't remember that name. No. Like that name. Never. Right. Oh, it looks like he's mainly been doing TV. Uh, Tom's where, favorite. Where we? Okay. Anyway. Oh my God! You guys quit distracting me. Oh, Number one from Keith Lee. The re- uh, huh? Is this it? Well, okay. The rec room scene in the thing. Where McCready devises a test to flush out the interlude. It's a multilateral standoff until a resigned shrug from the thing as it realizes it will lose cover. So well directed and edited, you forgive the old jammed weapon trope. I'm fine with that trope. Donald Moffat really doesn't want to be tied to that couch. No. Uh, Kelly Wan, do you approve of that as a Mexican standoff? Well, we don't know what the thing's take is. Um, Right. I mean, it's yeah. Uh, I would. It's you know. It seems like an effort to make anything a Mexican standoff. Well, here's why Get the I movie, and then go. That could yeah. be it. I'm wondering here's... if like the movie Carnage is a, is a Mexican standoff. Or waiting for Godot. Well, here's why I think that kind of works is because the thing is sitting there and it knows that if it tries to get out of the blood test, it's going to get called out. If it's if it submits to the blood test, it's going to get called out. And the people administering the blood test know that and know that the thing knows that. So Uh everybody involved knows that whatever the outcome, the thing is going to be outed and it's going to be some weird eruption of – you know that that flesh special effect and blood and and whatnot. I think they all know I, yeah. something bad is going to come out. It's not going to go well. I do really like how you put that because I know that there are certain board games we've played where you have to give information or decide not to, and that that is the same dilemma that you're faced. Right. right. Arthur Ginvalala Jelly, number three in Glorious Bastards. Oh. When the bastards meet Diane Kruger, they encounter a German officer, and everyone ends up pointing guns at each other underneath the table. Actually, just two of them, Arthur Jim Delala Jelly. Okay, uh, right. Number three. I'm glad he picked this one. In Bruges, when Ray finds Ooh. chasing Colin Farrell, they end up back at the inn where Farrell is staying. As Farrell is trying to get a gun, he left in his room. When they both have guns, they can't shoot at each other because the inn's owner won't leave, and neither of them wants to open fire near a pregnant woman. They have a pretty hilarious exchange where they work out how to resolve the standoff without endangering the owner. Now, that that to me is more like, you know, a standoff with a negotiated sort of everybody right. stand down. But I do. I love that moment. And we'll get her back around to this later. Is that the line, Dingus? No, it just seems like oh, that's oh, oh. what's going on there. Because that does sound like something that would have been written as a line in there. Yeah. 
Arthur Gillivald Jelly's number one pick. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a graveyard at Sad Hill, their three titular characters meet. Uh, we know, yeah, the resting place of Arch Stanton and have a classic Mexican standoff, right? The Morricone score is memorable, uh, accompanied by rapid editing and camera work. On paper, the standoff is very long, but in practice, it works so well you don't notice its significant length. I kind of noticed, but it does work, though. I mean, the the way it's drawn out. Let's talk about whether or not that's a cheat. All right. Here's my thinking. Rewind the podcast, and you'll hear more. Grant Stewart. (laughs) That's cheating, too. (laughs) Just one just one pick from me, Grant Stewart says. My favorite Mexican standoff. Oh, Grant Stewart, you were in so much trouble because I thought about this. All right. Grant Stewart, no. No, no, no. I'm hitting you on the nose with the newspaper, Grant Stewart. It's rolled up. I am whacking you on your snout. Because Grant Stewart writes, my favorite Mexican standoff is the one engineered by the Joker in The Dark Knight. A ship full of prisoners and a ship full of commuters no, are giving triggers to bombs on each other's ship, with the Joker trying to inflate, initiate some sort of class war-related shenanigans. No. No, Grant Stewart. Uh-uh. No. No. So that's that's actually – that's not even – like that's a, that's a little morality scheme about people's willingness to kill. It's not even, and it's been described as this. There's a there's a thought experiment of the prisoner's dilemma, where if you have two criminals separated from each other, and you go separately to each of them, and you say, okay, look, if you rat out the other guy, you'll get a year in prison. He'll get three years in prison. However, I made the same deal to the other guy. So what do you do? So the idea being, if neither of them rats each other out, they get a less sentence all around. If one only one of them rats the other one out, he gets off easier. But he has to assume that the other guy's not going to rat him out. So that's this whole idea of the prisoner's dilemma. It's a thought experiment uh, about how much do you trust that other people will do the right thing. And it's similar to uh, Dark Knight in that it, it, it's dissimilar in that if they don't kill the other person, everybody's going to die anyway. Like, it would be immoral to not kill the other person in the ferry boat in Dark Knight. Right? Like, that's that's the setup. If you don't kill the prisoners, they're going to die anyway, so you're going to die. If the prisoners don't kill you, they're going to die anyway, and you're going to die. So so what the Joker's doing is is basically just trying to force someone's hand into becoming a murderer. Which is this whole thing with Batman. You know, Batman right. doesn't want to kill anyone, and if he does, it compromises his, his values. So the Joker's just trying to get people to kill each other because those people know that they're going to die at midnight, and the only way to save themselves is to, to become murderers. That's right. a test about your willingness to kill. It's not the prisoner's dilemma. It's certainly not a Mexican standoff because you, everybody has a way out. That's the point of it. Right. It's, look, I just kill. I, I press the bomb. The other thing blows up. I'm out of there. I'm fine. Right. It's not the same thing as mutually assured destruction because – once once they flip the switch, it's not like the other the other group has a chance. Oh, then we will too. Yeah, and and Is what I love. Oh yeah. You go ahead, Kelly. Want because I'm about to credit you with something, but I think you're going to blow it by saying something dumb about Star Wars. Go ahead. <laughs> no, I'm going to say this instead. If Anakin wins the pod race, Watto wins Portman. So <laughs> what were we going to say? So the movie Closer would never happen. Oh my God. <laughs> 
I think one of the things you pointed out in a, I think in a write-up, I think it was you, Kelly Wand, uh, that the Dark Knight is is one. It's a rare superhero movie where Batman doesn't save the people; they save themselves. Maybe you didn't say that. that. I I thought you wrote that at some point. I was like, wow, Kelly Wand made a great point. Maybe that wasn't you. You know what? In that case, I came up with that. Dark Knight's a movie where (laughs) that was Trump. All right, did I did we miss any? We went over pretty much a, a lot of them. Any any runners up? Uh, not, uh, I've got a couple of runners up actually. Yes, Dingus, what do you got? Um, I really like two grenade moments. You know, where the grenade is the threat, while people yeah. are pointing a gun at you. Yep. And so the idea is, well, you could shoot me, but the grenade's going to go off. Because one of the things I don't like about like alleged Mexican standoffs is some guy has a knife to somebody and some other guy has a gun. Cause I just think a gun is faster than a knife. And I just don't believe any of that <laughs> knife versus gun thing, bringing a knife to the gunfight thing. It's got superior range too. I, I want to hear your grenade thing, but I, I think the whole conceit of a, if, if the John Woo thing, if you've got a gun in my face and I've got a gun in your face, I just shoot you. You know, the speed of a bullet, the damage it does to your brain before you can pull the trigger. I mean, the only reason I would get shot is if a spasm messed right. up your trigger finger muscle. If we're holding guns in each other's faces, the guy who shoots first wins. That's it. You, know, that's you get threat. shot in the head at yeah. point blank, you don't have time to pull the trigger. <laughs> right. So I think all these Mexican standoffs are kind of like contrived for dramatic effect. But, but so go ahead, your, your knife. Well, that's why it's good if you have like a, a, a triangle, because if I shoot right. Mr. Orange, then you shoot me and then he shoots you. And it, there's not, there's no, like my spat, the spasm might kill the hostage or whatever. And in uh, but, a grenade, it's literally called a dead man switch, where if you're right. dead, the switch triggers. Exactly. So what, what, what was your specific example? Well, one of the ones I really love is Lethal Weapon. Um, when they're out in the desert, Danny Glover takes the grenade out when he's trying to get his daughter back. There's all these guns trained on him, and he says, uh, if you shoot me, we all die, and he's holding this grenade up. And um, and Hunsucker says, I, I think it's Hunsucker says, you know, you're not going to do that. I know you're not going to do that because your daughter's here. It's a nice try. But what he doesn't know is that there's a sniper Mel Gibson, you know, Martin Riggs is out in the desert with a sniper rifle, and he's an excellent sniper. So there's another element of that, but then Gary Busey's also on him. So there's all these different elements ah. to that scene. Uh, unfortunately, what it turns out is that what what Murtaugh has is is a, just a smoke grenade. He's He's been bluffing. So he's kind of a dick like Clint Eastwood in The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Yeah, kind of. Uh, the other dread. The other grenade is, and you're going to hate this time, it's from Uh-oh. X-Men First Class. And it's Why do I hate when, that? You well, don't like Kelly, that Wand, Kelly Wand went Jesus, though. Kelly Wand hates it clearly. Yeah. I'm okay with it so far. But he goes onto the yacht, and, and the reason it's a Mexican standoff is because he's up against these mutants, this colonel, and he's he knows that they they probably have the drop on him, but he has this grenade, and he's like, I will I will set this off. And Kevin Bacon, this is the reveal of, of how Kevin Bacon's character, it turns out. Oh, yeah, no, I do powers. like this. Kelly Wan, you're crazy. Yeah. This, is, this is one of the cool parts in that movie. Yeah. Remember when Jennifer Lawrence sat on Nicholas Holt's lap in that movie? Yeah. <laughs> no, but that I remember what, what, stand off for me. I remember what Kevin Bacon did to this grenade thing is about to explain. Oh, yeah. But do you remember that Kevin Bacon also set it off? Uh, he's like, no, I, and I know you're not going to do that, but I will. And he, he, he sets it off himself. <laughs> and so I love the way that that particular Mexican standoff resolve, resolves because he, he's like, all right, fine, we'll set it off. 
And then if, he, of, of course, absorbs the energy. That's does he get a quarter stuck in his brain, though? That's how he dies, death by quarter. Yeah. No, he doesn't get stuck. It goes through. Yeah. Oh. Uh, if he had those powers in the movie Cop Car, it would have been a much shorter movie. <laughs> I wonder if he was thinking about a quarter while it was going through his brain. <laughs> is the – um is is uh, – What's his name? Oh God, I can't think of Rob Riggle getting shot in the penis in Twenty One Jump uh, Street. Is yeah. that a, the end of a Mexican Santa? <laughs> oh God, it's the tip. Oh, <laughs> uh, uh, all right, yeah, Kelly. Uh, anyway, that's enough. That that's, I guess. that's perfect timing for you to tell us what next week's three by three is. <laughs> well, these topics haven't been very interesting lately, so I'm going to try and snap that cold streak with something cool for once. Oh, jeez. We've done jump scares. We've done watch parts. We've done oceans. Covered all the big bases. But now it's time for something. I just get letters every day from Donald Trump. We should do this as a topic. It's the three best flying cars in movies. <laughs> Good <laughs> Lord. You have entries you'd like. If you believe in flying cars and wish to hear me say what you wrote at this speed on the internet in a week, send your submissions to, <laughs> to Dingus, CC Dingus on it, to 3x3 at quarter to 3.com, and you will become as famous as. Uh, any of those people whose name is we read earlier. Oh, you reminded me of another Mexican standoff all of a sudden. Thank you. What? what? what uh, no, I'm not going to tell you because it well, relates to one of the ones I might choose. All right. It has a flying what, car in flying it. Flying cars? Mm-hmm. No one say anything. Spoiler. <laughs> uh, by the way, Kelly Wand, I think a rich source of flying cars is anime. Mm. No, no. It's, tro- it's an anime trope. Flying cars. Red line, they all stay on the surface. <laughs> all right. Uh, we will be seeing next week. If you don't know anything about this movie, you are in luck. Uh, if you I'm can go quiet. into if you can go into it, not watching a trailer, not knowing what it's about, it's a great movie that starts with this what is going on with some good reveals. So if you can know nothing about this movie, it's now available for video on demand. Next week we're doing a movie called The Girl with All the Gifts. What? Uh, why are you going what, Kelly Wan? You're seeing it. Dingus is seeing it. Hopefully you know nothing about it. We'll do a podcast about it next week. And then our much-awaited topic, flying cars in movies. We'll do it then. The girl with all the gifts? Yeah. That's I thought for sure when – Because what happened, listeners, is that you know we didn't know what we were going to do until Tom told us. So I thought it was going to be that movie that you really liked called um, – I don't like myself anymore, or something like that. I don't feel at home in this world anymore. Uh, we oh. could do that, but I, I already, like I've already reviewed it, so I mean I don't. Oh, mind you have. Stuff okay. I've already. I've already. No, no. Reviewed. Let's do all the girl with all the gifts. I, I was just telling you what I was trying to imagine you were going to choose. Uh, if you're listening and you have not seen, I don't feel at home in this world anymore, directed by Macon Blair and starring the lovely Melanie Linsky, you should see it. I love Melanie Linsky. Well, you don't love her enough to see that movie, apparently. Uh, Why do you? What do you love her from? I saw her in a, in a television show. Oh, uh, that's now right. I can't think of it all of a sudden. No, she's doing TV. I forgot about that. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I just that's, love her. I mean, she's really funny. Well, I thought really, I jumped the shark, kind of. You thought I don't feel at home in this world anymore? Jumped the shark? Yeah. 
All right, well, we're going to do a podcast on it, and I'll explain how you're wrong. All right. <laughs> no, I can understand that. I can understand that. But it's just, you know, it's Melanie Linsky, Kelly Wand. Come on. That's true. She's but then so there's adorable. too many other characters that. That's what happens in those movies. They start out with someone I'm really interested nah, in. Yeah, right? nah, you're so Talks crazy. About other shit. Kelly Wand, do you think that, uh, that Raising Arizona jumped the shark? Um, I rest my case. All right, next week. Wait, no, what was Melanie Linsky in? What was the early movie she was Heavenly, in? Heavenly Creatures. Heavenly, Heavenly Creatures, Creatures. sorry. Yeah, so. yeah. Which I recently we rewatched because of uh, I don't feel at home in this world anymore. She she basically she still looks like she still got all that cute little baby fat. She still looks like the same little girl she was. But what's hilarious, hearing her not doing her New Zealand accent, like it's hilarious going hearing her do her American accent. She's great. All Australians are, and New Zealand is one of the states in Australia. But hearing her do an American accent and then going back and seeing her in her native New Zealand accent, uh, is it's just really. It's really weird. Surprising. I think she murders Charlie Sheen in Two and a Half Men, and that's how his character's written out. She gets to throw him into a train, I think. I don't know if you're lying, but if you're not. Is that really a thing? Yeah, if that's that's not a thing, I want to go on believing that's a thing. Kelly, if you're lying, I don't want to know. I may just be dumb. (laughs) We'll take that as well. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so next week, Girl with All the Gifts, 3 by 3 favorite flying cars in movies. I'm Tom (laughs) Kick. I've been here with... Christian Murkowski. It's Christian Murkowski. And Kelly Wand. If Brie Larson had me or makeup, I'd fuck it. Because I like cosmetics. The bird has a point. Stranger than liquid fiction at room temperature. I swore an oath to keep it secret. This lie has kept apocalypse at bay for hundreds of years. We were afraid if the queen's heart was destroyed, you'd lose your immortality or die. That wasn't your choice to make! Best Mexican stand-up was my titter feud with The Rock, but I resolved it by saying it didn't happen. Fake news. So now they're going to make a movie without me. Three nerds sitting in front of me during the movie tonight, and, or the other night, and after as the credits rolled, one of them was really annoyed by something, and the only thing I heard him say was, I don't like Rockstar Games. <laughs> Does he mean the company or games where you play a Rockstar? <laughs>